Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age Podcast. This is your host, C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age, and I am speaking to you from Costa Mesa, California. Hi, this is Stephen G. Fullwood. I am the exhibition coordinator for Marking Time, Art and Age of Mass Incarceration, which will be opening up at the Schomburg Center May 1st through December 4th. 2023, and hopefully, if you're in the New York area, you can come and check us out. Hi, I'm Steph Rodney. I'm a former editor and senior critic at Hyperallergic, and now am an independent arts writer and curator. There's a show that is opening next week that I've co-curated in the Atlantic Atlanta Buckhead uh, area. Its show is titled The Alchemist. And if y'all are in the Atlanta area, please come and check us out. The opening is March 3rd. I'm also co-curating a show that will open at SF MoMA in 2024 titled Get in the Game, which is all about sports and sports in all its, in, in its many permutations. This is to remind our listeners that we practice what we like to call intellectual intimacy, which is giving each other the space and time to figure out things out loud and together. And we have our second guest. So, you know, last week was our, or last week, I guess last month was our first uh, new format. So now we've got our, our second guest, uh, which I'm going to let Stephen and our guest introduce uh, him. So please take it away. All right. Um, first of all, I'd like to welcome Sydney Baloo. Sid is a TV writer, producer, dancer, archivist, and journalist. I said archivist, yes. And whose work on the ballroom community has been published in the New York Times, Vice, and Them. He is a proud member of the House of Extravaganza, and he was co-executive producer on HBO Max's competition show, Legendary Seasons 1 and 2. He also works as a staff writer on HBO's Van- The Vanishing Half under Jeremy O'Harris and Aziza Barnes, and he was a staff writer on The CW's Tom Swift. After living in Paris, Berlin, London, and New York for five years, yes, that's awesome, Sid is excited to share his story of trans- uh, transition in a memoir history hybrid book, Undeniable, a history of voguing, ballroom, and how it changed my life and the world. He is writing about New York City's ballroom history and his own history within it. The book tracks the chronology of ballroom culture and voguing from the 19th century to present day through the usage of archival material, archival material, and our own history. It tracks Sid's own history and transition as a member of the community for over 10 years in Europe in the U- and in the U.S. Sid's accolades, of which there are many, include being a recipient of the Martin Duberman Award at the New York Public Library and being listed on the Condé Nast Now List 2020 on Them. He was also a 2020 Artist in Residency at the Laundromat Project and a 2020 Sokolov Arts Fellow in 2019, he made history as the first transgender man to win a voguing category at the biggest ball in New York City, the Latex Ball. This year, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Sid, but I pulled this from you. <laughs> this year, he made history as the first black transgender man in the WGA. What is the WGA? Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm very happy to introduce um, Sid. Um, welcome to American Age. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I invited you because we had this really great conversation recently about resources uh, for your for your book, Undeniable, and mm-hmm. at the Stromberg Center, but also elsewhere that might be useful to your project. And so I think it's fitting that we begin with the book project. Um, mm-hmm. 
And so I want to ask you a little bit about the origins of the book project, why it's a hybrid book, a history memoir book, and then just kind of flow from there. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I just want to say it's such a pleasure to be here. It's such a dope podcast. And um, oh, and to your first question, what's the WGA? The Writers Guild of America. That is the Thank you. union for TV screenwriters. And they always <laughs> love to remind you like how incredibly hard <laughs> it is to get in because wow. statistically, apparently it's easier to be in a major league baseball player than it is to be in the WGA. Are so. you serious right now? Well, yeah. What? It, it's yes. the, the only the only well-paid writers in the world. So. <laughs> yeah, ah, I was just talking okay. to a friend because also <laughs> okay. there might be a strike in May. There's like all this drama that potentially can happen and i was talking to actually a screenwriter friend of mine yesterday apparently i think like active writers it's somewhere around like eight thousand people so it is kind of rare that um mm, you know okay. you find a lot of variant people who do not fit whatever society considers the norm in there so mm, um but yeah how did the book come about um well as i mentioned i was living in berlin for well I'll take a step back. I was living in Europe for about five years and I first started out there. Uh, I had studied abroad in Paris when I did my undergrad. I went to UPenn. Mm-hmm. I was really into poli sci. It's like, you know, Obama hope change years. I graduated <laughs> in like 2011 and okay. I felt like, oh, you know, public policy, we can change the world. I mean, I still on some level, you know, it's part of the process, but mm-hmm. um, I had gotten a fellowship to study in Germany in Berlin um, and at the time I was really interested in eco justice and this sort of thing. I still care about these issues, but, um, I also was there to party at club like everybody else <laughs> goes to <laughs> Berlin. And, um, I remember I had this German non-binary pole dancer roommate named Bella, as you do, <laughs> and we were talking about Paris is burning. And I remember mm-hmm. Bella goes, you know, Sid, you could take a voguing class here. And I thought, this is the whitest place on earth. What the hell is Vogan doing <laughs> in Berlin? That's okay. Let's see what what are the girls giving. So yes, I went, yes. and it was um, my first Vogue teacher, Georgina. Today she's in the house of Saint Laurent. Mm-hmm. She's an Afro-German woman who is a dancer choreographer, and she would go to New York during the summers and, you know, take a bunch of dance classes, like a lot of international people who come through New York. And mm-hmm. um, oftentimes they would like fall in love with voguing. Either they go to a ball or they take a class from somebody. And she wanted to build a scene in Berlin. And so I was there right when she started to do that. And she threw the first ball in Germany in wow. 2012. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of how I got into the scene. But then... You know, through that whole process, it was like, I walked a ball in Dusseldorf, I won my first grand prize, I moved to Paris and then eventually to London because I was doing a dual master's at the time in urban planning. And at the same time, I was like taking these intensive, like, you know, (laughs) urban planning classes. I always like to say I was welding policy by day and voguing by night, just like flash (laughs) dance. You know, that was kind of my uh, trajectory. But but really things came to a head when I moved to London because I was asked to sit on a panel to talk about Paris is Burning for um, Sarah Ahmed's. She had like a gender studies class. She was still at Goldsmiths. And I thought, oh, my God, what if somebody throws a curveball question? Let me talk to an expert. So at the time, I was in the house of Omni, uh, which is like one of the old school New York houses. And uh, the father of our house, Kevin, he was based in Jersey. I did a Skype call with him that I thought would be, you know, a quick 30 minutes. And we spoke for three hours. And I thought, my Mm -hmm. God, who is recording this history? Because he was dropping gems that I'd never seen anywhere. 
And so at the time, I, you know, like I said, I was still kind of in that policy realm and considering what to do for my master's thesis. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll do this like impact study of New York post Hurricane Sandy. And then I was like, that if I go to New York, I just want to Vogue. Let's cut the bullshit now <laughs> and let's just figure out how to do that. And I told my advisor about, you know, this treasure trove of info I found from Kevin. Mm-hmm. And he basically was like, you know what? I don't know this literature, but I do know it exists. Tie your research to geography in some way. So my master's thesis project back then, I was looking at how the geography of New York City affected the history and evolution of the ballroom community. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is I would ask senior members of the community, legends, icons, pioneers, take me to a part of New York City you think is most relevant to the history of the ballroom scene and tell me about your history within the space. So if you were part of the very old school, you know, like late 50s, early 60s, you, it was all about Harlem. You know, we would mm-hmm. be up there, you know, Elks Lodge, all the stuff you see in Paris is burning and so on. But if you're maybe a little younger, it was downtown, Christopher Street, the pier, Washington Square Park, mm-hmm. all the iconic locations that, you know, we all know about today. And so when I finished the thesis, I mean, I had nine interviews, some, be, you know, 30 minutes long, some, you know, f- couple hours. Um, I remember thinking like, okay, what do I do now? You know, I had all this data left over and I thought this is so fascinating. It's kind of sad that this, you know, could end with the master's thesis. But by that point I was like, okay, I was in London at the time. I also was trying to figure out what my next moves were. And I also knew I wanted to start transitioning and I was running into these like bureaucratic hurdles. My visa was running out. Also, NHS in the mm-hmm. UK, their healthcare system is just not very trans friendly, at least at the time that I was there. And I had so many trans friends in New York. So I was like, you know what? Let me just move back to the US. I was considering PhD programs, applied, got into UPenn's Africana Studies program. And um, I did that for a year and it was a terrible year <laughs> for like, I mean, it was just super transphobic, honestly. Like they, I was really, really shocked and it was very disappointing because these were professors who, many of whom I like worked with in undergrad and to realize like, oh wow, okay, like you all have major limitations around, you know, I don't know, transness or just things that you don't understand. And I also, at the time I knew I didn't want to be in the ivory tower. I wanted to do more public facing work. And I mm-hmm. knew that I also wanted to do more commercial work. Like I knew I wanted to be a TV writer. I wanted to work in that kind of space. Um, so I left and I was pursuing this idea of, okay, what do I want to do with this data? Do I want to do a podcast? Do I want to do something? And I met, um, Eric Marcus, who's a great mentor of mine. He's a journalist who in the nineties, he did a book, um, where he interviewed uh, folks from the gay liberation front Mm -hmm. and basically, you know, as people were starting to die out, he wanted to make sure, you know, that history was still here. And he gave me the idea of doing a book because he was like, you know, said a book can help you, you know, build the oral history archive you want. And it's great Mm -hmm. because then you have a book and then later down the line, if you, you know, want to do something else like a podcast or something, you can consider that. And so, you know, one thing led to another. I took a meeting at HarperCollins. They loved it. Uh, The person there was like, you should write articles as a way to raise your profile. I wrote a piece in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, I get a phone call a month later from this showrunner, this guy, Josh Greenberg, who was like, hey, we're doing a show about the ballroom community and we're looking for writers for this show. 
um, you know, producers basically, would you be interested in writing for us? And obviously I was like trying to work in TV anyway, working on my scripted material. And so um, I asked all my friends who worked in the biz, I was like, hey, should I do this? They were like, get a lawyer, go for it. It's great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we did season one, Legendary. That was like top of 2020. You know, first, the, it was kind of crazy too, because like literally our last day of shooting was the day that everything shut down. Um, and then we all went into hiding, did season two, and then, you know, all, so many other things happened from there, but I'll pause because <laughs> I feel like <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> that was a great, thank you for answering the question so broadly and with the different context. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, most but, of. Yeah. Um, I, I have a question, um, Sydney. You said, uh, would you prefer Sid? Yeah, you could go either one, Sid or Sydney. Sid's very fun. Okay, cool. Um, uh, you said, uh, your friend said when you thought about taking this job, uh, you should get a lawyer and then do uh -huh. it. Why do you need a lawyer? I mean, to do the contract, you know, to okay. also have some kind of protection if you're new in the business, you know, it's like, if you're not represented, if you don't have like an agent or manager, lawyers can also be helpful. And mm. I mean, this lawyer ended up being very helpful. I mean, the, you know, part of how I have a co-executive producer credit is because I did have a lawyer. So glad right. I worked mm -hmm. out for the best. Right. And that Excellent. was, and that leads to my follow-up question, which was when you talked about getting, taking this job, you said... Uh, they were looking for writers for the show. And then you said basically producers. So how does that work? What's the sort of, uh, what, what's the sort of key difference or, or, or what's the, what's, why are those like getting conflated in that sentence? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, here's the deal when it comes to, so the show Legendary on HBO Max, it's a competition reality show, right? Mm -hmm. Similar to like America's Best Dance Crew or, you know, So You Think You Can Dance or any of those kind of shows. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so real so it's kind of like reality TV on some level, right? Like mm -hmm. even though it's unscripted, you still have to have a script for the host. You know, mm -hmm. like if you watch Jeopardy, all the things that the host says, somebody has to write that. And right. that has to go into a teleprompter. And there's like a whole rigmarole around that. Gotcha. So... But the thing is, with uh, reality TV, is they don't like the WGA and are scared of the WGA. <laughs> so, you know, because it's a union Surprise. and it's a very strong union. <laughs> right. um, mm -hmm. It's it's kind of interesting because, like, every other aspect of the show is, like, union and as far as, like, the crew and uh -huh. even the, mm -hmm. you know, judges are SAG and it's just, you know, it's like, you know, DGA is, you know, the Director's Guild. But for whatever reason, they're still very deathly scared of, like, considering um, what you call it, like the people who do all the copy to be mm -hmm. uh, writers. So right, right. instead what they'll do is they'll give them a consulting producer credit. So, oh, okay. you know, when you watch those shows, if you look at the credits, oftentimes they'll say like consulting producer, but really, you know, that's the person who's writing everything. If you watch like Drag Race or something, producers, a lot of those people are really just writers, you know, because at the end of the day, producing entails a lot it could be you know you're going in the field and getting the interviews it could be that you're coming up with the creative content for the episode or what have you so mm -hmm. yeah that's all that that means it's a, it's a bit of like industry semantics but um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know it's still it still counts it's important on some level yeah 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 no that's so, clarifying Sid, so, so i i i wanted to ask a different question except to jump follow up to what no, no 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 please go oh. I, 
So you had said you were in Berlin when you took your first voguing class. Was yes. that your first exposure to voguing culture or was it just like your first time you actually put yourself out there? Well, it's interesting because so when I was talking to that friend, Bella, the one I mentioned, we were trading bars from Paris is Burning, which okay. I think is at the time. So this is like 2011, 12, right? Can you so tell us what trading bar means? For our oh, audience. Tra- <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Yeah, we, were, we, were, we would just put the movie back and okay. forth to each other. It was okay. kind of like, that's part of the cult appeal, I would say, of that yeah. film. Uh-huh. is like, especially if you're young and queer or any kind of LGBTQ+, it's like, at the time, you know, even still today at some level, but I feel like now there's more content. There's like Pose and TikTok and all yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. But at least then, when there was like nothing, <laughs> uh, Paris is Burning <laughs> was really kind of a deep cut you know and it Mm -hmm. was the kind of thing where it's like okay you're in the know so that was part of my exposure and then the other part of my exposure was youtube of like seeing all the youtube videos because that back then you would there would be these like viral videos and that was also again the space for videos before like tiktok or instagram and um i just remember thinking oh that's so cool and then you know kind of filing it away and then having it kind of reappear when i met this you know roommate and realizing oh my god this culture is accessible like you can do you know and also like what what is it doing here kind of thing so mm-hmm. yeah but then that was definitely my first time i mean i'd never taken like a formal dance class or anything like that before then like i I come from more of like a sports background. Like I'd played, you know, I'd done boxing for years and, you know, mm. had done other stuff like tennis or basketball, but never something like dance. So that was, that was definitely new territory. But you had you, the physical was, dexterity though. Like you had the sense of timing cause you'd done all these other things that are physical sports related. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing about voguing. I do appreciate is the whole point of it is to bring whatever is unique about you to the table. You know, Mm. it's like, yes, it's a movement. It's like a form of dance in a certain way. It's a very particular form of dance, which we can kind of get into. But um, yeah, if anything, too, I I played the saxophone for like 15 years. I was like a total band geek, played in a ska band, (laughs) played jazz. Oh yeah, I I had, very, I had a very very short lived Scott career in college, but you know okay. that, and I will say to me for me that's my like uh, what you call it my secret weapon is my musicality. I feel like okay. people might be able to beat me on you know complex moves, but I will always hit the beat. <laughs> so oh sweet sweet. <laughs> In your uh, in your them interview, you mentioned that there were some differences between the voguing community in Europe as opposed to here in the United States. You'd said that in Europe they're like very like focused on kind of the actual physical movements, and and it was more about that as opposed to sort of in the United States there was kind of what I took to be kind of more political cultural overtones that you don't necessarily have in the European voguing community. Can you oh, talk wow. about those differences? Okay. So, I, I mean, can you talk about those, those the differences in the community in, in Europe, Germany, London, whatever, and mm. then, you know, when you came to New York? Yeah, well, this is a great question. I mean, I think, like, you know, it's interesting. The way that voguing, well, there's all so many things, too, because I should be clear, you know, with balls, there's different categories. Some are more fashion-oriented. It'll be like, you know, sneaker versus sneaker, who's got the coolest sneakers, or um, something like runway, where it's like, who's got the you know best runway walk. But then there's obviously like, you know, the dance side of it, which is voguing. And these are, you know, kind of 
dance battles of sorts, we'll say. Um, Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is for Europe specifically, um, I think part of how ballroom ends up there, you know, there's like so many different vectors, the globalization, globalization with like social media, things like YouTube, you know, the fact that that travels and all of a sudden people are watching these cool clips or MySpace and, you know, the way that communities can connect and, you know, and then there's also just the reality, like I explained with Georgina, my first teacher, I mean, she came to New York, saw the culture, thought this is super cool, wanted to bring it back to Germany. And the thing for her is like she was a dancer. So really, you know, I I mean, people always make these or I should know people don't make this. I'm making this comparison with hip hop um, (laughs) where obviously there's like the four, you know, four elements of hip hop of like, emceeing, breaking, turntablism, and uh, what you call it, graffiti or um, like tagging. And I think what's interesting with hip hop is like the at some point, the main vector becomes the music, I think. Okay. You know, when people think mm-hmm. of hip hop culture today, they're usually thinking about that commercial side of it. Um, whereas I think with voguing, even though like any culture, it has all of these things, you know, an ethos, a language, a culture, an aesthetic, whatever. Um, I think voguing is usually the vector, like the dance is the vector that I think ends up sort of really what reaches people. But that said, then, you know, I think when it first started, there was more of of an emphasis on like, performance like on the on that side of it and the other cultural aspects and kind of like the socio-historical context from which it arises in like New York is obviously very different you know it's like to be a person of color queer person of color trans person of color in Europe is different from being that in New York or anywhere else in the U.S. But that's not to say there aren't like political ramifications or kind of like larger issues that the kids deal with out there because transphobia happens there. Also, I think Mm -hmm. particularly in Europe, there's a constant erasure of like people of African descent all the time, whether you're in Paris or Amsterdam or London Mm -hmm. or anywhere, you know, like when you think about people with institutional power who are people of color, there's just more of that in the U.S. than you have I think when I when I look at Europe, but that said, like you know, as ballroom culture voguing has like traveled across the world, I see how different cultures interact with it. So, for example, last summer I was in Lima, Peru, because the House of Extravaganza was invited by the U.S. Embassy to be cultural ambassadors for Pride, and it was incredible to see just the way that ballroom voguing culture was just like an essential part of life for so many of the young LGBTQ plus kids there, because again, there's no representation of themselves in media, in politics, in society, and ballroom almost was a way for them to see a version of themselves that's possible or that, mm-hmm. you know, can provide a sense of community, kinship, you know, creativity and so on. I mean, there's, there's just so many levels to it. So I just want to ask a quick question then said about that. Do you think then that part of the reason that ballroom culture becomes a kind of vector for um, the larger LGBTQ plus community becomes really visible is partly because it's entertainment? Ooh, this is a great question. So, so you're saying, uh, could you say it again? Uh, is it, could you ask the question one more time? Sure. So, 
the way that you laid out the differences between Europe and, and the United States made me, and, and, and you know, specifically you talking about your experience in Lima, you, you've made it sound as if the uh, queer community there isn't very visible. Uh, members of the community aren't able to see themselves represented in media um, mm. writ large. But they can, to some extent, through uh, ballroom culture. Mm. Do you think that is the case because ballroom culture gets eaten up by the rest of society as mm. entertainment? Mm. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I do think, because if you think about it, right, like, if you're not, in a way, social media, I think, ends up being a platform in itself for the community to exist, mm -hmm. right? Like, that is how it travels on some level. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, ballroom is inherently tied to spectacle. That is part of the point right. of it. And so mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it's just hyper-visibility. It's meant to be visible. I, I also think that's kind of the beauty of it as an archivist is that because mm. it's meant to be spectacle, there's VHS tapes, there's old clips, there's photos, mm -hmm. there's a lot of ephemera of like yes, black exactly. and brown, mm -hmm. you know, LGBTQ plus people. Whereas I think oftentimes when you're trying to find us in the archives, we're hidden. You always have to do this mm -hmm. like crazy digging. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so many elders have like their own stash of like photos or, mm -hmm. you know, old ball DVDs and stuff like that. And yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I think it's a really, yeah, that's, that's part of it for sure. Yeah. That's a, it's an interesting observation, Seth. Uh, it, the, I mean, there is a way in which entertainment historically is kind of a safe space for queer performativity. Right. I mean, so it's kind of a heterotopia. Like you, you basically, you get to try out all of these things that are normally circumscribed by the community at large. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, I don't know, just to comment, that's a, it's a great observation, I think. Um, I, I, it makes me think of this moment when I was in Canada, I was in Toronto covering something for Hyperallergic. I was then at that point, uh, an editor at Hyper and traveling mm -hmm. basically around the world, um, covering shows for them. And I was covering of well, it doesn't matter. I was staying at a hotel downtown Toronto and I remember coming back after the long day out looking at the exhibition and there was this happening in the hotel lobby. Um, and I, I, I had come in thinking, oh, I'm just going to go to my room and, and, order, and order dinner and just like stay in and do emails, whatever. But I noticed this big commotion off to my right. And there's a large screen television and tons of people were in the um, that section of the lobby watching this TV show. And this mm. TV show was... RuPaul's Drag Race. And I remember thinking, mm. I don't know of another TV program that would do that. That in like in a hotel <laughs> lobby that would gather all I mean, I think it was like, you know, a season finale or something. So, mm, so yeah. it was an important episode of the show. And I remember thinking, I cannot think of another program. This was this is how many years ago? This was probably mm. mm -hmm. 2017, 2018. Mm. I couldn't think of another TV show that would garner that kind of like almost community respect. Like it, like it made mm -hmm. a, a kind of community in that moment of people mm -hmm. like gathering and cheering for their particular uh, 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 hero. 
Um, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, I, I, that that seemed to me to be a like a, a particular thing in culture that I just didn't see anywhere else. Mm, yeah, no, I mean, in so many ways. I mean, Drag Race, because, I mean, Drag Race does borrow so much from ballroom culture, especially in terms of language and whatnot. But mm -hmm. it's a competition. People love to see competition. We're human. Mm -hmm. We're hardwired for mm -hmm. games and mm -hmm. this sort of thing. And, mm -hmm. like, you know, I think, if anything, I, it's so funny. People always compare, like, Drag Race to, like, you know, gay Super Bowl kind of, you know, or almost like, <laughs> I mean, in, in many ways it is, you know. And that's how people see ballroom culture, too. It's like, and I, I could totally see, especially for guys who were picked on for being too effeminate or trans women who may have been picked on or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. I mean, I was picked on for being too butch, for being too masculine, like for so many of my year growing mm -hmm. up in a house full of girls, I never felt like I was beautiful. It was only when I was mm -hmm. in ballroom that I realized, oh my God, my masculinity as like a little butch lesbian, like pre-transition and even just the ability to transition and see a version of yourself that's possible. I mean, that only happened through the community. And uh -huh. um, that to me also explains the love uh, and sort of what is special about our communities is that we are way more expansive in the ways we think about beauty and worthiness and, you know, joy and how to experience that. So so, so, so sorry, I don't want to dominate the conversation. I'll, <laughs> I'll ask this and I'll be quiet for a while. But do you? I think, love your questions. Keep them coming. <laughs> but do you do you think Sydney then that because um, there's this argument that's been made, and I'm I'm thinking about this a lot because I'm co-curating this show about sports. Mm. We talk about competition, and there's an argument made in a relatively small but vocal uh, part of the more parental community. That competition is inevitably kind of toxic. That com mm. competition in some ways poisons relationships. Um, mm. But then there's a much more vocal part of the sports world that argues, or doesn't even argue, they just kind of act from the premise that competition actually makes us stronger, that competition mm. actually brings out the best in us. And I wonder yes. within the voguing community, within mm -hmm. the ballroom, and then the, large, the larger subset and the smaller subset of the voguing community, whether that, how you see that competition playing out? Do you see mm -hmm. people getting like really, you know, <laughs> really nasty on stage and like, you know, you know, you know, doing a thing where I will cut you, don't come for me, that kind of thing? <laughs> or do you find that there's a way in which competition actually brings people together? Or is it both? I love this. I love this. I mean, I would definitely say both. I mean, because okay. what's what's kind of interesting, it's like, on the one hand, I mean, I'm of the, when I think about competition, sports, you know, these sorts of things, I mean, there's so many, you know, whatever, all the things we hear about Little League, right? It builds character, you learn grit, determination, you learn, you know, the value of hard work. And, you know, also, it's about you as an individual, you as a team, you know, you these are soft skills that you learn. All that stuff is in ballroom, too. You know, it mm -hmm. may be more fabulous. And like, you know, instead of whatever, practicing pitching for a softball game, you're you know, practicing maybe in a studio or at home, you know, you're posing and, you're, you know, or getting your outfit together and figuring out what your peels and reveals are going to be, these kinds of things. Like, <laughs> you know, that's that's also part of it, because I, I think what's beautiful about ballroom is it gives a space for um, I've always felt like ballroom culture is uh, a world of 
creative um, competitors and competitive creators. So, you know, we're artists in, in a certain sense, right? Like we're bringing our own artistry to life, showing it to others. The fact that you have a judges panel of people who may or may not see it for you, that it is like literally, uh, I mean, the way a judges panel goes, it's like, you know, you'll have anywhere from five to, I mean, I've seen like nine more than that, 13 at a big ball. If one of them doesn't see it for you in the preliminary round, you're chopped. It's either they all give you tens or, you know, if there's one chop, mm-hmm. you could have nine, you know, eight tens and one chop. Um, I think that kind of brutal elimination in a way is really great in 2023, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because... Yeah. Again, it teaches you grit. It teaches you determination. It also says that we have a high artistic standard, right? And like, I think instead of, you know, the way culture is now where everybody gets an A and we're all, you know, marshmallows or snowflakes or something, (laughs) I do think it's nice that there's a little old school energy to be like, no, work on your craft. These things are a craft. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, I feel like even black folks in our culture you go to the Apollo Theater, right? It's a tenor chop in there too, right? If the booze start, it's a chop, right? (laughs) But that also says that we have like a high quality standard of what singing is supposed to be. I don't know. I'm thinking about a time I went to like amateur night at the Apollo and I remember Mm -hmm. just witnessing that firsthand, watching some guy, you know, hit the verse on a Marvin Gaye song and just the crowd turn on him, you know, (laughs) at a drop of a dime once he hit that second verse. But no shame. It's gotta be fab, right? Like it's gotta be, you know. Especially with his black culture, I feel like. I mean, I don't know. I I do think like it depends because I feel like we have a higher standard for music, weirdly, than we do for like a lot of film and TV, in my opinion. But, amen. Um, oh, a- a- amen. Sid, <laughs> tell this the truth. Not the time. Shame the devil. This is not the time to bring that up. <laughs> I know. I'm just throwing it's daggers awesome, oh, on a Saturday. Sorry, you got me going. But you know what I mean? Saturday but either way, morning. Yes. There's, a, there's a standard is all I'm trying to say. And I, I believe competition... I get, but the other thing too, I want to add, I think what's dangerous, at least like politically at the time we're living in, mm. specifically when I'm talking about politics is that we clearly have an issue with the, you know, the Trumpism of the world where people don't know how to lose. I think graciously losing, this is, this is a problem because to me, it's not that competition is toxic. It's the fact that there is bad sportsmanship. And mm. I, you know, one thing that I always Ooh, remember growing up nice. is learning, mm. you need to learn, You and it's funny, we had a moment like this actually on Legendary. I remember it was when Tamar Braxton was on the show where she was giving feedback and she's like, you need to take your L's with your W's. You mm. need to learn how to do that, mm. which is true. And mm. when you mm. when you talk to the legends, the icons, people who are of a high stature in the community, all of them got chopped. They all of learned course. how to pick themselves up after the humiliation and keep going. I've gotten chopped, you know, and that is how you learn. Mm. I think that we we can't teach kids, you know, we got to teach them how to also graciously, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. lose, pick up them, you know, pick themselves up and keep going. So, yeah, that's kind of where I stand on that. Thank you for that. Thank you. Love that. Yeah, too, I mean, I, I'm getting I, I'm getting a little sidetracked, but I don't think I'll go down that road. I do. So I, I, I do get a little reticent when I when I think about the wisdom of the crowd, you know, sort of the idea that mm. that uniformity produces greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that like all of everyone has to agree in order to, you know, for right. something to be recognized as great. Mm. I, 
that makes me slightly uncomfortable. Um, I think for good historical reasons. Um, mm-hmm. But I actually would like to, to stick with something that you you said previously. Something that occurred to me when I was watching, because again, like I said, I had like an hour, you know, like watching voguing mm-hmm. and things like that. And you know, one of the things that I was struck by, so to kind of stick with the sports discussion, is um, the number of similarities that exist in in the voguing that I saw with any other kind of excellent physical activity, right? I mean, mm. these are, you know, these these adults, these kids, you know, whatever, they're young to me, so a kid, you know, like they're spending hours, you know, perfecting mm-hmm. their craft, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. practicing a run, you know, not any different than a kid that's on the court, you know, practicing their free throws or someone else, exactly. you know, in another, you know, throwing the football or something like that. Um, that element of physicality, I thought it, it was really compelling to watch. Mm. Um, and there's also kind of vocabulary, at least in the ones that, at least, you know, in the, in the compilations that I saw, mm-hmm. um, you know, there seemed to be um, there, I, you know, we kind of joked before we started the podcast about, you know, shoulder mobility, right? I mean, so mm-hmm. this is something that like the, the actual, the movements themselves had um, a kind of um, unique extremity to them, which I thought mm. was, was interesting about that. Is that something, you know, sort of the, can you talk a little bit about like, the physicality of voguing yeah. culture. Like when you, when you were preparing, like how many hours a day would you practice? Like, did you, <laughs> you know, you, did you, you know, would you, would you do runs and then like maybe do one in a competition? Like, okay, that's Practical. flopped. I'm going to, you know, go back and, <laughs> you know, like, so no, I mean, I am because, you yeah. know, honestly, part of the reason I'm, I'm going in this direction is because I feel like, you know, one of the points of the podcast is actually trying to find linkages where, where they might not be. I, I mm. um, we, there's enough, there's enough narratives, um, driving communities apart. Mm. I don't like shorthands about people or groups Mm -hmm. uh, at all across the board. And so for me, it's important to find like, where are these connections? And so that seems like a very vital connection, right? I mean, here are bodies that are, you know, looking at other bodies, making compelling movements that they find beautiful, challenging, and then they're putting their own bodies into those, Mm. into that crucible to, to see what comes out of it. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Like sort of like yeah. what was, what was, what was compelling for you? Like what was engaging for you? Like, why did you jump into it? Like how hard did you have to work? Mm. Um, how easily did it come to you? You know, mm-hmm. who were the greats? You know, that kind yeah, of for sure. Well, you know, it's funny. So as I said, back in the early two thousands, when I was in college, I used to watch the YouTube clips. And at the time, mm-hmm. the style of Vogue, cause this is the thing, Voguing as a form of movement has uh, shifted over time. And that change and shift, it's very fascinating as far as New York's club culture history, New York's musical history, um, it all maps onto that. And that's obviously like part of the work that I'm doing. So by the time I, I, you know, get to the 2000s, the style that's very popular is what's called Vogue Femme, or even specifically Vogue Femme Dramatics. And um, to kind of take a step back... what was the style that, that it supplanted? So Vogue, Vogue yes. fans. Yeah. Let me walk you through. So basically okay. <laughs> when voguing kind of emerges in the seventies, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, I'll even take a step back from there. Ballroom cultures first started with the femme Queens or, and this is kind of hard. How do we describe people from the past with, right. you know, our terminology from today? Cause not, you know, as you all know, this is, this is particularly hard when it comes to LGBTQ plus history, because literally the, t- the language has changed so dramatically over time Absolutely. and the ways people think about gender and sexuality have changed and identity mm-hmm. have changed a lot. You know, it's like, you know, it's very different. I feel like when you're doing like African-American black history, it's like black as Negro is, you know, it's like that one 
one drop Colored. rule. Mm-hmm. Plus, you versus Ferguson <laughs> literally sealed the deal of like the way that people think about race, for better or for worse. Uh, I think when it comes to LGBTQ plus identity, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, some people really, you know, I don't know. That's a whole other conversation we could have because I think, uh, you know, policing race is like, you know, happens from both sides, I think, because of that. But that's like a whole other topic we can talk about. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, Mm. But at least on, yeah, LGBTQ plus identities, it first started with what we call the femme queens, so, or feminine queens. And that kind of encompasses what you would consider trans people, uh, gay men, or what we call butch queens who were maybe up in drag. So people who did drag, who may have identified as gay or bisexual, who are cisgendered men. Um, and really it used to be a competition for them to um, present their form of realness or passing as a woman, right? Like who's the most beautiful? And you right. see these old clips um, or pictures mm. from the 50s, 60s. I mean, even going back because to like balls really started in the 19th century in um, New York. And it has everything to do with fraternal society organizations that used to do these fundraiser masquerade balls, basically. And the most famous is the Hamilton Lodge, which um, Mm -hmm. they used to do. um, They're like the Society of Odd Fellows that they um, used to host this kind of fundraiser event. And because it was a masquerade, you know, this is a liminal space, an opportunity to break the norms of society. Mm -hmm. You see this and, you know, I read about this as far as the idea of the carnivalesque, right? That like... Mm-hmm. bourgeois society has these very strict rules but you know there'll be this one day a year where you can break all those <laughs> rules you know and we see that with mardi gras a great example of that is halloween i think by our standards today in the modern world is like you know that's if you're a man who presents masculinely that's like one day where you can wear a dress and nobody's going to be like what's wrong with you right because right. it's halloween yeah, car- and it's all of that just to just to jump in super quickly, though, the carnival thing is super interesting and has deep historical roots and is arguably what kept feudalism going as long as it did. So, I mean, this idea mm. of like the Jubilee, the Jubilee yes. would overthrow all debt, everything like every, it was this, right. this, this liminal space that in which you could um, you could rewrite everything momentarily. Yes. So, and yeah, momentarily. And just yes. the, the history. Yeah. 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 yeah, just, and, yeah. And, you know, and then everything back that, and then back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. Back to normal. And with that, Ooh. you know, our own U S American tradition of that, which is also one of the roots of ballroom is the cakewalk, right? Like the cakewalk is a version of that because that mm. was, you know, the one time a year on the plantation where the enslaved Africans switch clothes with their white, you know, so-called masters and whoever could do the best impersonation of the master won a cake. Right. And like, that's where you get this term. Mm -hmm. It's a cakewalk or it's a piece of cake. But um, that whole idea of like imitating dominant culture, um, that kind of travels through like vaudeville. You see it travel to like minstrel shows, Mm -hmm. makes its way to New York in many ways. And you see that kind of influencing movement. And even this idea of femme queens or female impersonators, as they were later known in the 50s and 60s, um, doing who can do the best impersonation, quote unquote, right. of a woman, right? And win a prize. Now, by the time you get to the 70s, so many things have changed in New York. Um, you know, when it comes to the 60s, a lot of people think of the 
documentary The Queen, um, which follows a uh, female impersonation impersonation pageant in the 1960s. And in that moment, Crystal LaBeja, who's really the first mother, mm-hmm. um, the house of LaBeja was the first house that was formed in the ballroom community in 1972. You see the mother of that um, that house kind of have her breakout moment at the end of that. But it kind of gives you a sense of, okay, that's kind of, you know, a, a, a sort of, I mean, that was a pageant, so it's different from a ball, but at least you get to see, okay, this is what female impersonation looked like at the time. Now, by the time the 70s roll around, okay, you get a slight expansion because, yes, the femme queens would compete and you there would be their friends who were gay or bisexual men. There would even be butch lesbians who would go and watch. But at some point, they started lobbying for their own categories. They're like, we want to compete. And so now they include more people. And so you get more categories for different genders to also compete in different ways. When voguing emerges, really, I mean, the pioneer of that, and there's like so many origin stories about like, where does this come from? And, you know, it's kind of my fun, you know, there's a story that, oh, the Queens were voguing in Rikers Island. And, you know, then it kind of trickles into New York. There's a story that Paris Dupree, who you see in Paris is Burning. I mean, it, the film Paris is Burning is named after a an annual ball that Paris would throw. And mm-hmm. she's really considered the mother of voguing in so many ways. When of her origin stories for voguing is uh, that before the balls would begin, um, you know, they would pump the beat and really balls, uh, you know, that would happen in Harlem were really like after hour parties because you have to remember 70s, 80s, New York nightlife is popping and people Mm want to be able to go somewhere once the clubs close. So where Mm -hmm. are you going to go? To a ball, of course. Um, And that's also, you know, for them, uh, entrepreneurially smart (laughs) of like, how do you get the biggest audience? (laughs) Don't compete with the Paradise Garage, honey. (laughs) Wait till they close. (laughs) And then (laughs) get everybody uptown. But but yeah, so basically one of the stories is that, um, you know, before the balls would begin, Paris would hit the floor and start posing on beat. And everybody started gagging and then oh, other people join in <laughs> and they were like, wait, 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 we have to create a new category. And then the first category they created was called performance. That's another like origin story I've heard. There's even one story of like somebody challenging Paris or something and she has a Vogue magazine and would like open a page and then do the pose and then open another page <laughs> and do the pose. And, you know, but either way, what ends up happening is there's this idea of like, Again, presenting yourself, your uniqueness, what makes you special, um, and doing it to music. And in the 70s, it was South Soul. It was disco funk. It was, you know, the music they were playing at Better Days. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, Paradise Garage. And the thing is, at the time, the performance becomes pop, dip, and spin. And the idea was you had to be able to pop your joints, go into a dip, Um, which is a full layout. It's not a death drop. You know, it's like, that's kind of the weird, uh, what you call it, like telephone game with drag race, I think. It's like the (laughs) ballroom community does stuff and those like RuPaul drag race queens just like pick it up and call it something else. But it's called a dip. (laughs) And then um, you had to be able to spin. So, you know, go into, you know, spin at some point. So the style with that, though, what becomes known as old way, because I'll explain over time, um, what happens is there's mainly amateurs, right? And it's all about clean lines, grace, precision, 
Um, there's a lot of influence from martial arts because martial arts was really hot in the seventies, you know, and there were all those theaters and mm. like yeah, Times yeah, Square yeah. where people mm-hmm. would go. And, you know, there's all these stories of, of that as well, influencing it. So you see that breaking was happening at the same time. You see elements of breaking, but then what happens by the eighties, like mid late eighties is then you start getting trained dancers, people who have like technical backgrounds where they can do mm. more complex poses. Right. And also the music starts to change you get mm-hmm. house music is emerging yep. mm-hmm. the beat gets there's faster. a class aspect to that there's a class aspect to that too at that this, point right because yeah, these are, well yeah well because if, if you've had if you've had years of dance training you have come from a background that affords you years of dance training yes and, so and no that, yes and no what i'll say is for new york city what's unique is you got places like laguardia high yeah, school right absolutely. which mm-hmm. you know pulls kids Fame. from all over i mean that's jose Jose Gutierrez, that's his mm. story. That's Lewis's story, who mm. ended up being the dancer choreographers for um, Madonna for Vogue. You know, they're both from my house, the House of Extravaganza. Uh, Jose is uh, the father of our house. I mean, they studied at LaGuardia. So, yes, they had that background. But they also, I don't know, even for Jose, he did like gymnastics as a kid. His mom just enrolled him in his classes. He didn't grow up wealthy. So, um, oh, so, sorry, sorry, sorry. I no, just no, want to interrupt so, just, to, just to let the audience yeah. know that LaGuardia is a public high school in yes. uh, uh, in the Bronx or in Manhattan? I think, I, I want to say it's Manhattan. I think it's Manhattan. Manhattan yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it, just, so just so people know, fame, it's, a, it's, a, it's a public school. Um, um, and fame, the TV uh, show uh, in the movie high was modeled after it. Yes. Yes, yes yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to clarify, um, when I say class, I don't necessarily mean uh, strictly upper class, right? I, mm. I just, I mean that... I mean, even middle classes, right, are, you know, that have the the resources to put their kids into leisure activities. I mean, this is, it's a fairly unique category in the history of the world that you can enroll your children into uh, leisure activities. That's not what most kids do in most of the world. They, you know, oh, go ahead, Stephen, you're about to say something. No, I, I definitely, I just agree with, I agree with both of you, but the thing is, I do think it's unique for New York, but also it's also unique in other places where black folks who didn't have a lot of like, they weren't middle class, but they were able to get their kids into, I did violin. I did, you know, various things. And I grew up middle class. I mean, I grew up working class poor. So it really kind of depended on the city and what was available to the kids at that point. Even in New York, when the um, music education kind of was on the, um, it was just dying out. It went to the streets. It was like people were doing, still doing these things <laughs> yeah. that were after yes. school programs. And there was a lot of, lot of, there are a lot of um, collections at the Schomburg that testify to this that mm. when something died in the quote unquote public sphere, people would take it up. So mm. they found a way to get those kids into mm. different aspects of the um, arts culture. So mm. that's what I wanted to add to that. Yeah. Mm. And, and just to pick up, piggyback on that, because I, I think what, what I'm really trying to say is, when it first started, right, when voguing first began, right, this is just like, you know, okay, we're just kicking, you go to a ball mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. But then clearly it starts to crystallize in some kind of way or it starts to um, standardize almost in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. what ends up happening is you get people who either, you know, have a gymnastics background or somebody like Stiffy Revlon. I mean, he has this like yoga background. He, mm-hmm. you know, was a kid with asthma as a, and had a South Asian doctor who was like, 
you know, what if, you know, I could either prescribe all these, you know, prescription drugs to you, or you could just do yoga. And so okay. if you look at the way that he poses, they're like super complex yoga poses, okay. you know, mm. and, but like there's, there, everybody has kind of the unique story, but what I wanted to explain was that at some point, the style of Vogue shifts so dramatically. They're like, wait, wait, wait. These are two different things we're watching here. Okay, that's the old way of voguing, and then we have the new way of voguing. Mm-hmm. And so then that becomes a distinction. And then by the time the '90s roll around, really the big innovation is this idea of Vogue Femme, or what originally was known as Butch Queen voguing, <laughs> like a femme <laughs> queen that just kind of gets shrunk down. But the idea was um, there are many femme queens who had a very unique style of movement that people wanted to emulate because it was just, you know, so incredible as far as femininity and um, Mm -hmm. expression of that. And so then you get gay men emulating them and doing these kind of hyper feminine movements. And I mean, there's like a whole trajectory of how that splits off into two different styles of there's one style called uh, Vogue Femme Dramatics, which is really, you know, hyper expressive. That's probably the stuff that you all saw where people are moving very fast. Mm-hmm. You're telling a story. It's, you know, maybe a woman possessed or, you know, what have you, something <laughs> like that. Um, and then the counter to that is what's called soft and cunt, which is the idea of hyper feminine movement, but very um, slowly, very sultrily, you know, a, a sort of sultry style in a sense. And um, again, there's what's interesting, I will say, is back in the day when you when I talk to elders, you know, they talk about how social media has kind of like obscured Vogue in many ways, mm. because Back in the day, the only way that you could learn was either going to the pier, right, Right. going to the club, uh, or going to a ball. And you had to be in person with somebody, right? And and Mm. even a really great way for you to learn was to battle somebody who was better than you, like at the club or at a ball or something, because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they would bring something else out in you, right? And um, when I look at the old clips from back in the day, people's movements were very bespoke, is very unique. Uh Um, And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it's just you, right? Whereas if today, one, more people are learning in studios, right? Voguing is being taught in the same way like hip hop or any other quote unquote street style of dance is taught. Mm. Um, Also, you have TikTok and like Instagram or YouTube to watch clips. And there's like a level of standardization that kind of ends up happening. And, you know, it's like on the one hand, yes, it's a craft and there is a kind of form to it. But at the same time, it's an improvisational style of dance. It's rooted in black cultural tradition. I mean, the thing that I'm, the way that I'm framing what is voguing specifically, it comes from a black jazz tradition, right? Like the idea of the circularity of a beat and that you then improvise over it. Like that is what jazz is, is we vamp the beat Mm. and then you show us who you are, whether it's on your saxophone or singing or scatting or what have you. Um, And voguing in so many ways pulls from that same tradition. It's like Mm -hmm. we have this house beat going, the commentator, the person on the microphone calls you out, who are you, right? You got to mm-hmm. show who you are in that movement, right? And like, tell us about yourself and make sure the judges see it and make sure they see it for you and not for the other girl, or whoever you're battling. Like, you know, that's kind of how I see it. So I want to actually follow up on Travis's question because I think it was a really good one. Um, so just to reiterate, um, mm-hmm. 
How was it for you training? Who did you look mm. up to? How, how much time did mm. you devote to this? That sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, like I said, at some, so originally when I went to Georgina's class in Berlin, I wanted to do the feminine stuff. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was, I mean, I was, even though I was like this little butch lesbian, I had mm -hmm. so much internalized lesbophobia okay. within myself just because I grew up in a very conservative, you know, Catholic immigrant, West Indian home. Right. And it was like, there was no space for my masculinity as a butch woman. And I remember Georgina walked us through a number of styles of Vogue. We did some runway. We practiced some posing. And she told me, you know, you're really good at the masculine stuff. And it was like the first time I'd ever thought about my masculinity as a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember when she said that, my initial reaction was, yeah, that's what I'm trying to fix. Mm. As if that was something about me that was bad. Mm, you know, it was sure. like how deep it was. Yeah, yeah, it was mm. very, very deep. But mm. then when she said that, it actually opened my mind of like, well, you know, my body wants to naturally give lines. My body naturally wants to do this kind of masculine style, this old way of mm -hmm. movement. Um, what if I leaned into that? And so I studied the clips from the icons, the legends, people like, I mean, there's so many names to go through. I mean, Jamal Milan, Duan Milan, um, you know, you Eldona Fields, you you know, just like there's like a litany of people I can just list. Tim Princess is another amazing one. Derek Icon. Um, but uh, yeah, I used to watch the clips and I'd practice. I'd walk balls. Like I said, it's I, I mean, I see balls similar to fighting a boxing match, to be honest with you. You know, there's sparring where you're it's you're in the studio and it's you and a friend. But then there's showtime when it's like, mm -hmm. all right. 1098 who's walking right and it's mm -hmm. like to me mm -hmm. the, the i have the same adrenaline feeling i get when i get in the ring and it's a real fight uh and that comes from when you're practicing in the studio or practicing at home i mean i think the thing that's so difficult even when i hear you know elders complaining we don't live <laughs> in 1985 where there's a club night at mega clubs right. you know everywhere in the city like we live in the post giuliani post you know mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. you know like post post of all of that where all that shut down in the 90s right, right. that's like a very pivotal moment Please. when all of you uh -huh. know peter gation is out in new york by the early <laughs> 2000s and just spaces where you can just be free and hear music and enjoy yourself become very scant. And I yeah. think part of where all of that goes is the internet, right? Then oh, that's yeah. part of why that becomes an organizing space is there actually is a space for us to exist where rent isn't absurdly expensive, you know, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we can, we can connect with each other in a certain sense. So mm -hmm. um, to your point or to your question, I mean, Yes, I put in the time. You have to. But it's also, you know, the time at home. It's the time with friends. It's, you know, I think I've I've come to a new realization. I used to think I had to look outside of myself to improve my Vogue. And I realized, especially through do, starting to really do this work of like, no, 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 Sid. It's about who are you? You mm -hmm. know, what is unique right. about you and where you come from? Like, what can you bring to the table? So I'm kind of in this, I would say, almost like sophomoric um, stage of my voguing journey where 
Um, I felt like trans women have made such an incredible impact on the culture for femininity. My curiosity as a transgender man who vogues is what can we do with masculinity on that other spectrum? Is there, mm. you know, a sound barrier I can break as a trans man mm. in a way that I see masculinity that no cis men can ever see? Because I do. I, I mean, I know, and you'll see obviously with the book, I have, I feel like I have a very unique perspective into what it means to be a man. And, you know, I'm kind of curious how I can explore that in my movement. So I may have mentioned this to Travis and Stephen before. I don't know that I did. Forgive me if I'm uh, repeating myself, but uh, I, I recently had a trip to San Francisco and then LA. And I was in LA at Mark Bradford's studio. And Mark mm-hmm. Bradford is, yeah. well, I, yeah, it's just Sid, you seem to recognize his name. Um, Mark Bradford is one of the most famous painters, I guess I, guess I can say, in America. Mm. Um, uh, is based in LA, um, shows with the, one of the largest galleries in the world, Hauser and Worth. La la la. Anyway, I was in his in his studio because he's good friends with my colleague Katie Siegel, and <clears throat> mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. he had invited Katie to come to his studio and do a studio visit and just chat with him about what he was working on. And I went with Katie. I was invited along, and Mark actually remembered me from back in the day when I was a student at UC Irvine, and my then professor Daniel Martinez gave Mark his first show at Daniel's uh, uh, gallery, Deep River. So I used to see market openings and whatnot back in, that was what, 99, 2000, 2001. Anyway, mm-hmm. we ended up chatting and we were, we were talking about everything. And at some point we got on the subject of masculinity and he said something like, yeah, you know, I really feel, and he, gesturing towards me, you know, I really feel sorry for you straight men because as a gay man, I get to be all these things. I get to be... Mm. Um, dramatic, mm. I get to be giddy, I get to be um, <laughs> hilarious, I get to be um, bereft, I, you know, I get I, like a, the full range of human emotion, right? But straight mm. men, they get to be about three things, at least publicly, <laughs> right? Be and, mad, fight, and I fuck. Said, be what? mad, fight, fuck. Yeah, yeah basically. Basically. <laughs> basically. Wow. Basically. That needs to go on a t-shirt, Steven. I love that. Yeah. That's Wow, yes. that's, a, yeah, that's one way to wrap that up. I didn't think about that. Right. Yeah, it's, it's very Freudian when you put it that way. Yes, exactly. And, and he said, and then he said, um, and, I, and I totally agree with him. And then he said, you know, the only thing I can't be as a gay man is powerful. And I have been mm. thinking about that since oh. because I don't know that I agree with him. I'm still mm. pondering. I know that, that. I don't, yeah. but yeah. 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 I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. And, and I'm reductive. wondering what kind of power he meant. He meant. Mm. Um, but mm. anyway, yeah. So there's, there's that about masculinity too. So that, that occurs to me in that like you coming from, I guess I can say this with the other side coming to masculinity, mm-hmm. you would have, I think a unique perspective on just how limiting Mm. masculinity can be do you mm. what do you what do you think about that I, I love this stuff this is such a great yeah I mean I also would parse this out a bit and say we're, we're talking about I would say manhood mm-hmm. 
masculinity to me is, you know, these are the differences between gender identity Mm -hmm. and maybe like, you know, there's like so many things, gender identity, sexuality, Mm -hmm. you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. But I do think, um, because as a lesbian, I was also masculine, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a type of masculinity Mm -hmm. to be, you Mm -hmm. could be non-binary and masculine Mm -hmm. at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I think there's, you know, expansion in all those realms. Right. Because like masculinity to me, um, you know, that's being a father, that's being a brother, that's being an uncle, mm-hmm. you know, these are different roles that is out, you know, that are out there in society and different ways that we think about that. I mean, I think as a trans guy, I think a lot about what is worth salvaging, because I think when people think about masculinity, they think it's inherently toxic. And I don't agree with that. I think really the toxicity, because toxicity can exist in feminine form as well. Like I experienced all of that shit, you know, my mother wanting me to wear makeup and you know dress Mm -hmm. like a girl and sit like a girl and you know that is Mm -hmm. to me it's really about the participation and patriarchy Mm -hmm. you know the question is are you participating in that are you enforcing the rules of that for other people that's toxic you know Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i see that elsewhere i think that idea of enforcing patriarchy for let's say cis boys growing up yes it's incredibly limiting that can be incredibly limiting and i think for a lot of gay cis men when they grow up it's like yeah, you're constantly inundated with this idea that everything about you is wrong, you know, whether it's your sexuality itself, like your desire Mm. for other men, or also I think um, your femininity oftentimes, you know, and this isn't to say that every gay man is effeminate, but for the ones who are, again, that's like an enforcement of in order to be a man, you have to be like this X, Y, Z. And I, I think at least to his point about, oh, you know, I can have this full range of human experience and emotion, which is true. Um, I could see how the sticking point though, especially if you're a cis man is like, you know, we're all looking at the white, straight, cis, hetero, whatever, you know, bell hooks like tagline about, you know, the person in the (laughs) position of power, right? And like that, you know, it's always like with the people who are one degree away, I feel like who have the greatest (laughs) sticking points, you know, it's like, you know, it's either, you know, white cis gay guys where they're like, "Eh," you know, or or I feel like, you know, even white cis women, the straight, "Eh," you know, and it's funny because I feel like for the rest of us who are like several degrees away, I feel like it's it's funny. Actually, I want to share a short little anecdote here. So, um, remember, I lived as a black lesbian woman for like 28 years of my life, right? That's, I started Mm -hmm. transitioning around that time. And Mm -hmm. it was very interesting because I remember once I started, you know, taking teas, started passing more as trans, I have this distinct memory of the moment I actually felt like a man listened to me as a man, like I actually felt heard. And the moment happened when I was in Philadelphia (laughs) <laughs> and I was taking Uber to school. It was like I was there for the for grad school. And I remember we were talking to the Uber driver about um because I was like, oh yeah, you know, how's business, you know, whatever. And he was like, you know, we somehow got into the topic of Mother's Day. He was like, you know, the, the best day of the year, Mother's Day. And you know why? Because everyone wants to take mom out for brunch or, you know, to go to church, what have you. And then he was like, but you know what? Day is completely dead silent. <laughs> Father's, Father's Day. Father's Day, yep. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> and he was like, no. And, and I was like, huh. You know, and then we, and, and the driver, you know, is a black uh, man. It was very interesting because at some point we kind of got to talking 
well, what's the hang up here? You know, and my mm. my two cents I threw in was, you know, one thing I noticed is for I think for a lot of black cis women or just, you know, again, anyone who is not that one degree away from power, you kind of just accept your losses and you make it work. You know, you're like, well, I was never going to obtain power any in that kind of way anyway. So let me just focus on making it work. And then, you know, get to wherever I need to go. I do think the black cis men or just cis men in general get stuck. And the stuckness I see is sometimes like, you know, basically, I think that patriarchy, again, when we're talking about the full range of emotion, doesn't leave space for how do I emote when something doesn't go my way or how do I emote when there isn't like a woman to kind of be the vessel for my emotions, right? Like so many friends of mine who like date guys will be like, why am I turning into his mother? You know, it's like, well, because he didn't Mm. actually learn how to like be emotionally independent and like rely on himself in a way that I think, you know, the rest of Mm. us have had to learn how to do, you know, there's like so much there, but you know, anyway, it was just, and then also I think with men, what also happens is sometimes either they, because like you said, Stephen, right? What did you say? You could have fuck, you could be angry or you could be mad, fight, fuck. Yeah. Be mad, fight, fuck. Right. So what ends, what also can happen is then you internalize your, you know, losses and that becomes Mm -hmm. drugs or depression or what have you. And again, Mm. if you're not open to, everybody needs help. We all, you know, are human and mental health is not a weakness, right? Patriarchy says that it's trying to seek out, you know, wellness for mm-hmm. yourself is weak or effeminate. Like if you buy into that, it will ultimately destroy you. But anyway, okay. so we kind of got into all these things. It was so crazy to me because I remember him just being like, okay, like there was no comeback. There was no, let me poke holes in your theory. It was just like received. And I remember just thinking like, okay, that also tells me a lot, you know, about who gets to be heard or how your voices are evaluated depending on your Mm. positionality in this world. I I don't think we probably have time to get, if I can just uh, jump in really quickly. I don't think we probably have time to get into it. But um, I mean, I have to say, listening for the last five minutes, um, none of what, you guys have described as the cis white male experience is mine. Um, and, and I, I had said this earlier in the podcast, like I, I think we miss so much about individual experience when we make sweeping generalizations about large groups of people, which we are currently doing. Right. I mean, so to pathologize an entire group of people um, and their relationships and how they deal with their emotions. Like for me, for example, um, I, I didn't grow up in a household where it was taboo for me to express emotion, nor was it taboo for my father to express emotion. My dad grew up in Arkansas. My mom is like as working class German as you could come. And I mean, if we weren't on a public forum, I would, I could say, uh, you know, a lot of, um, uncomfortable things about my family background on my German side. Not, I don't mean racially. I mean, just like sort of like the things that they did to survive the Mm -hmm. jobs that they had. Um, that's not, I don't even like when I hear in, in media and conversations, these kind of shorthands that I hear about people, it's just not my experience. Like it's not any experience of anyone that I know. Now it's not that I'm saying I've never met anyone like that, you know, but those people are assholes and, you know, you pass on to, you know, and, and, and you fill your life with people who aren't assholes and you fill your life with people who do listen and you fill your life with people who can say, I love you. And you fill your life with people who do see beauty in other people. And you fill your life with people who don't think that there is one way to express beauty or affection. 
Um, so anyway, I, I just, uh, I, it, it's, um, it's hard for me to hear, um, those categorizations and not say something, even though I understand that Sid, that's probably your experience and Seth, obviously I've known you for decades. Um, so anyway, that's just my, my fireside comment. I would say your fireside comment also needs, I would say this, you guys just don't get a lot of good press. You're not out there. You're not the person. You don't don't get a lot of press. The press for a very long time. So the the thing (laughs) is, it's like when I think of you know, I was watching um, a YouTube video on incels last night, and I was like, (laughs) everything Sid was talking about was like turned up to twenty, and so. I always want to tell um, tell Travis, don't do don't do any uh, what do you call it. Trying to explain for the audience. I think I like to think that our audience knows that there are people who do not fit the various things that you're talking about, that we that we talk about. But we're also talking about something that even if one doesn't endorse it, one could end up endorsing it. Or not be it, but mm. end up endorsing it. Is something you said earlier, Sid, and I forgot about it. But it was just idea, are you endorsing a certain kind of masculinity by doing this, that, mm. and the other? You may not be that person, but you might go, Yeah, you know, guys should wear pants. That kind of thing, you know. So right. it makes so I think about those things a lot when it comes to how it's received. I appreciate your comments all the time, Travis, when it comes to this, because maybe some people need to hear that it's not all of us, but that <laughs> in that all of us, it's not all of us. I'm going, we 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 always have to I, it, I'm just so cons- not concerned, but I am very con- I, yeah, I'm concerned. That's the word about dumbing down speaking down to our audiences. About what do you feel like that's what I'm doing when I make those Stephen, do you feel like I'm dumbing down to the audience when I make those comments? I feel like it's the obvious. That's I don't think you're speaking down to them, but I do definitely feel like it's obvious that everybody's not like this because we wouldn't be having these conversations, right? So like I I, but c- I, could I couldn't be... I couldn't dis- I couldn't disagree more. I, I actually okay. don't think it's it. I mean I think I think uh and, and mm-hmm. we don't have to go down this road and, and mm-hmm. have, we can maybe when we do our you know when we do our our postmortem or something. Oh that'd be cool. Okay. Uh, for I definitely, in in my everyday experience and my consumption of media and entertainment, mm-hmm. I, I do not think that it's obvious. And I think it matters how we talk about. I personally feel like it matters how we talk about things, which is why I try to be. You know, it, here's a perfect example. So, um, pronoun usage, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, if someone says to me they they want to be referred to as a particular pronoun, I will do my absolute. You know, I, I might fuck up, I might make a mistake, but I, that's mm-hmm. what that person wants. They're, they're, they're signaling that language is important to them. They're, sa- they're signaling that the way that they're referred to is important to them, that it's vital to them. And so I want to recognize that, that mm-hmm. importance. So I don't understand how in one context we can say language and how we're talking about things is important enough that we have to register pronouns, which I agree with, I'm all for it, and at the same time say that it's not potentially harmful to generalize about large groups of people. That's that's the only thing I'll say about it. I think these are, these are, you bring up some really good points, Travis. I think what's, you know, what I hear, if I'm hearing you correctly, I think what we're talking about is cultural phenomena. You know, we're not talking about individuals. I think like, yeah, there's always outliers. I mean, there's so many people in ballroom who had supportive parents, supportive families, you know, not everybody came from Mm. a broken home there, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, 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 there's, there's obviously heterogeneity, but what we're talking about is a participation in patriarchy, which is a societal problem. And so by that I'm talking about, yes, there are so many men 
And so many women, so many even trans or non-binary folks who uphold, you know, it's kind of interesting the way that sometimes people can think they're raging against the machine, but like also upholding patriarchy in certain ways, right? Like this is something sure. I see happen all the time. So to say that like, oh, you know, uh, but this isn't my experience. Yeah, there's also many aspects of your experience, which may or may not map onto something, you know, one for one. But there are ways that, yeah, you benefit from those things. And I, I think one thing I've noticed is oftentimes people will kind of like, I don't know, try and like separate themselves from some sort of phenomena of like, yeah, but what about this? And it's like, well, you know, we're talking about something else. To me, pronouns, you know, these are about, yes, how we talk to each other. It is about language, about owning an identity, what we're talking about when we're when it comes to like gender, sexuality, I mean, this is like a much, much broader conversation, I think, that we're having. So we might be having two different conversations is what I want to put out there. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think we are. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, and I I think I, I understand your position. Uh, I mean, on this particular issue, mostly I was just listening to the stuff about voguing, which is super interesting. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I, oh, Sefri, oh, you're just yawning. Well, um, go, please. Yeah, I actually want to take this in a slightly different direction. It's a question I've been meaning to ask publicly for a long time. I think I've posed it to friends of mine privately, <clears throat> which is, oh, yeah, it actually is a, it, this follows on a conversation I had with Mark Deary um, and and my friend Glenn Adamson, we were having lunch, I think it was a couple months ago, and we were talking about the sort of, um, ooh, I'm not sure how to say this. All right, so I preface this by saying that I may screw this up in my um, um, sort of fumbling towards intelligibility you know, here. But there's a sort of almost speculative nature of the question of what it's like to have that across the gender across the gender spectrum what it's like if i if i was born into a particular gender um um you know born as a man let's say and i transition there's a moment of speculation of what it's like to be in a femme body um, which I don't know yet, right? But I, uh, but I, but I see as a person who wants to transition, I understand that in some ways, I don't belong in this body, right? Which is how some people have described to me their experience of of, mm. of being trans. Mm. Why don't we honor or give the same kind of? Space to be the same kind of mm. mutability to people who tell us, I feel like I've been, been born in the wrong race or the wrong ethnicity. And what I see from myself is over there. And I actually like Japanese people who um, mm. basically adopt all the sort of like mm. trappings of, um, I'm going to, I'm going to call it this way because I, I think this is the most accurate way to say it. Um, the trappings of hip hop culture and they mm. fancy themselves to be B boys or B girls and they mm -hmm. take that on. I mean, fully take it, take yes, it on. Yeah. Tan, tanning salons and everything. And, and that, everything. Yes. Right. And, and my <laughs> thing is we seem much. And when I say we, I mean, 
I, roughly the intelligentsia in the U.S., the chattering classes, seem much less prepared to take that experience seriously and to recognize mm. the validity of that than we are mm. to recognize the validity of people who transition from one gender to the other. Again, mm. not having experienced the other from birth, but understanding somehow that that's where they belong. This is such an interesting question, Steph. I, you, you, you got a lot of interesting questions today. I'm like, okay, we're back to back with like, huh? I didn't know the conversation would go in this direction, but I dig it. Yeah. Um, well, because one thing I will say when it comes to trans, mm -hmm. trans identities, mm -hmm. I think I we need a clarification. And mm -hmm. the reason I say this is because historically in the United States, um, there's been a script around transness. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this was developed with the so-called gender clinics in the 1960s. So mm -hmm. um, this is kind of some research I had found when I was working on The Vanishing Half. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, HBO was looking to adapt this book from Britt Bennett and... Uh, what was interesting is there's a trans character who appears in the 70s and it kind of got me thinking, huh, I wonder what it was like to transition as a trans man in the 70s. And I started talking to trans guys who were older who actually like experienced that. And mm -hmm. one of the things we talked about and also that I found in the literature is like basically John Hopkins. They you know, in the mid 60s, people found this to be very interesting at the time. Christine Jorgensen, she's like this super famous mm -hmm. trans woman um, after World War Two. She transitions and it becomes this very, very big thing in the papers and so on. So there's kind of, you know, greater visibility on some level of like, huh, the possibility and also who are these people? So they start studying this and then there are these gender clinics that pop up through the U.S. in different places, like Oklahoma was a place, Stanford University ends up being a place. And they have a very particular way that they're defining trans or what transgender means, right? Or this idea of gender dysphoria or I was born in the wrong body. Now, not everyone has that experience. I have to admit, I do not have that experience. Like, I think even framing it that way for me, I'm like... Yeah, you know, my lesbian identity meant as much to me. It definitely informed my worldview. Like, I'm not going to, like, negate this, like, whole 28-year history of my life um, just so I can fit this particular political, socio-political mold of the way that we're constructing trans identities for cisgender people to understand, because I also think that's kind of what's been going on in some some capacity. Um but that said, it's like there's a kind of pick your poison or, you know, everybody has their own way of defining what trans is for themselves. So that's one thing I'll say. Um, I think what you're hinting at is the difference between the way we view gender versus race. Right. And like we talked, you know, when we talked about Plessy v. Ferguson, right, a very clear definition of we're defining race, at least in the United States of America, in this particular way. If you go to Brazil they have a totally different way of looking at that, right? Or mm -hmm. Cuba or, you know, it's like you run down the list, right? And obviously the ways that we think about identity are completely built around our culture, the way that our culture views this kind of thing. Um, I don't know if I can really, I've heard the whole like doll is all to trans argument. Can you be transracial? Honestly, I don't really, I don't know. For me, it doesn't really hold water just because the way that gendered race operate to me are just totally, totally different. 
Um, and this idea of being like, even the born in the wrong body, to me, it's really that society is set up in such a binary way that if you don't fit the binary, they're like, you're the problem instead of no, the problem is society doesn't have a space for people who don't fit this binary. You know what I mean? It's like the binary to me is the issue, not the person. Um, and if we actually lived in a more gender fluid, gender accepting society, there would be no gender dysphoria because then you could just be yourself and be considered quote unquote normal if society considered it normal. Does that make sense? Yes and no. I mean, by, I, I think by extension, then I could, we could say if we lived in a society that was more accepting of the various tonalities of the human form, then we would not have those same issues with um, basically looking at darker-skinned folks around the world and saying, you don't deserve as much power or as much agency as everybody else. Like, right? Well, that's, yes. I think, well, I think, I, I love that because I think what you're getting at, I mean, one of the things I remember learning <clears throat> when I was at Penn was, um, you know, I took an anthropology class from Dr. John Jackson Jr. And I remember he he posed the most, you know, provocative question. This is like pre-freshman year um, where he was like, race doesn't exist. Mm. Racism does, mm. right? These are two very different things. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what I'm saying. It's about culture. It's about what society says is important or puts value or power on, mm -hmm. right? It's not like the thing itself. Mm. It's like, yeah, there are different... Mm melanin tones of people but the meaning of what any of that means is determined by the society itself so you see what i'm saying that's at least this is how i view it where i'm like yeah this only matters if you really care about where the boundaries are about being black or white mm -hmm. um if if there was no meaning to that or no power relations with that mm -hmm. then yeah we could all just kind of you know whatever just exist and be and you know you you can even see that with the way that like ancient cultures or other societies think about race it's like there is no oh this is the answer or this is the thing you know what i'm saying and i i can even see that too when you have like immigrants who come to the u.s and they'll be like you know maybe they don't identify as black right because that is a political social mm. you know identity right so you know i don't know it only matters once you come here and then there's a particular context which you're understanding that um you know, one of the things, Seth, as far as that goes, is I mean, as far as race and gender, I mean, communities of strangers need a metaphysical category, right? So they need something that is an immutable in order to, you know, sort of to cohere. If they don't have a metaphysical category, then they can't cohere. Communities of strangers, I'm talking like, you know, the United States, Catholics, Christians, Muslims, whatever, large scale societies in which people are never going to come to know one another. So in in u.s secular society that is race right it's it's a metaphysical category it doesn't actually really correspond to a physical space for many people that is not true for gender in american secular society it's not true in 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 sort of anglo-christian society for anglo-christian society gender is a metaphysical category right like you your your gender is something that's ordained by god it's something that is, you know, is not fluid. Like you could not, you know, this is why, you know, many people have to get out of heavily religious backgrounds. I'm sure that's some part of your background, Sid. I mean, you said you grew up in a religious household, right? In order to explore this other part of yourself 
that that background did not make room for, you had to find a new community in order to do that, which I hear in the language of the trans community, houses and fathers and things like that. So like you're out creating a new community, right? It's, 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 it's a, a unique experience. It's a, a unique space for you to go out and do that, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, but as far as like in, in American secular society, like the idea that race itself is a construct, right? Fully, 100%, totally constructed, uh, made up all the way uh, top to bottom is something that uh, U.S. secular society can't cohere around. I mean, we're sick with this idea of race and how we racialize one another. Steven? I, um, are we up on time? Yes, I'm going to say that. <laughs> are we up on time? Or do yeah, we pretty need? much. We're like at we're like an so. hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. That the is my clear. So Stephen's like, we're out. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like that. I have a, a lot to say, but it's it, we can just wait. We don't have to say everything we think, right? It's like uh, we can wait. <laughs> we can hold these truths inside our hearts. Truths. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, um, I would love to, um, just thank you, Sid, for coming on this really engaging, wide ranging conversation today that started with you and your book. And I had all these follow up questions about your book and I was like, well, no, this is way, this is, (laughs) this is not, this is important as well. It was really good to hear, um, your takes on things and, both Steph and Travis had amazing conversation. I mean, questions for you and commentary. So, but yeah. uh, we might have to have Sid, you back. Can I, for can some I ask more you stuff. to plug your book? Can I? Yeah, Sid, can I ask you to plug your book and sort of like yeah, when it's please. coming out and like yeah. when you when you expect to for your work to to get published? Yeah, and I want to add to that. Well, yes, please. Well, mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. What did you want to add, Stephen? Um, so, as you plug your book, can you talk about what you're looking for in terms of resources? So oh, that if someone right. hears a podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. And, and resources that I'm looking forward to, to do the book. Is that what you Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, as we, we talked about um, undeniable a history of voguing a ballroom and how it changed my life in the world. Um, I'm very excited. I signed with uh, crown I'm working with Libby Burton and uh, Angela Ledgerwood at uh, Sugar 23. I'm very excited. I am at the very beginning of my, at least this part of the journey. So I have to turn in a manuscript uh, next year, August 2024. (laughs) Um, So we don't have a pub date yet, but you know, it's probably either later that year or 2025, if anything. Um, And as far as research and resources I'm looking for, I mean, Obviously, it's like I'm doing oral histories with the community, um, Mm -hmm. which is a very big part of my research. I do life oral histories and I'm also doing archival work. So, you know, I'm in places like the Schomburg or uh, the Schwartzman on 42nd Street. Uh, Mm -hmm. They have really great resources like GMHC's archives and so on. So, you know, I'm looking at anything. I mean, also the New York Historical Society. I'm looking at some of their um, archives, especially around those early balls in the 19th century and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm really looking at New York City history. This is a book that uh, definitely responds to the moment we're living in. Um, Definitely elevating trans voices, really thinking about, okay, what are the deeper uh, socio and political historical implications of 
ball culture and the way that not only it shaped New York City and pop culture, but really the world, you know, and this larger discussion of what is the space for, you know, different identities and different ways of being mm -hmm. that, um, you know, ballroom ends up fostering and supporting. And of course, we've seen sort of the way it's trickled into our language, whether you say words like, you know, it's tea or, you know, whatever, sipping tea or throwing shade or slay or mm -hmm. any of these words that end up in spaces like drag race and, you know, trickle down into, you know, I think I was watching like CNN and they were talking about throwing shade and I thought, <laughs> wow, okay, you know, like, this is where we are with the culture, you know, and if it's the, out there. <laughs> you know, even more ironically, these, these, uh, I love these like hip hop artists, these guys who are super homophobic and transphobic talking about throwing shade and sipping tea. And it's like, well, <laughs> darling, do you know where any of that comes from? This thing, you know, if only you knew that it was, you know, these hateful queens who you love to hate on, you right, know, right. these mm -hmm. beautiful people. That you built your careers. Sometimes. Right? No oh. homo. Remember that? No homo. Be clear. How, many, Be how, clear. For how long did we have to hear that? And now you are full on homo, I guess. But <laughs> anyway, so that said, um, you know, I'm looking at all those things and, you know, more very, very excited to share that with the world. So I'm just grateful to be on this show. Thank you guys so much. I really oh, thank appreciate you. it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you very Good much. Good conversation. Thank you thank very you much sir. for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah. I don't think we have to do our introductions again, right? Because we've we've now we introduced ourselves in the first segment, and now there's just a musical, you know, for our listeners. Obviously, this is informal, but um, there's going to be some kind of interlude, and then it's right into us talking, right? So, where I, um, the, well, but the thing is, in the introduction to the, um, I guess, top piece of the show, I didn't tell the listeners where I was speaking from, and I remember feeling. A kind of way about that it's like that um they they, they be, they're lost in space without they don't know that i'm speaking to them from newburgh new york where by the way we just got like i think it looks like three inches of snow last night yeah you're in atlanta what where are you you're in atlanta you mean or like new york no newburgh i said newburgh i'm at home yeah we got it too but it's almost gone hmm it happened okay. like it was one of those days where it would snow and then it would rain or you know the sun would come out and it's gone. It snowed it's, at uh, my. Oh, I'm sorry. Go. Were you gonna say Stephen, it's it's a note to Stephen. It's the, uh, oh, the mic. No. The, the mic. Yeah. So Stephen, it needs constant reminders to be close to his mic. So. <laughs> constant, like a child. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> it's like a child. I tried pointing, and then I realized like you can't do direction on like uh, no. these screens because um, it's different for you. Like I see so Stephen. When in the you do that, I, I thought you were like, pay attention to something. It's like what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to. What? I'm yeah. a child. Um, it snowed at my parents' house in Banning, actually, which is uh, okay. just about it's about sixty miles from uh, my house. Mm -hmm. um, and is, you know, I would say is maybe elevation like another 500 feet or something like that. It's really not okay. very high up at all. So it's super unusual for there to be snow there. So obviously, you know, storms have been, you know, uh, a factor for all of us, you know, even though we're on the opposite coast. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. But you got rain too, though, Travis, right? Lots. Yeah, lots yeah. of rain. For, for us, you know, I mean, not for Seattle. Yeah, of course, it, it's, it unfortunately makes top of the hour news um, that it's raining. So um, <laughs> it's raining. So uh, where do you guys want to uh, jump in about the, you know, the conversation, the exchange? Oh, that's we, right. We could just start talking, right? So, yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. we are just talking. Um, I don't know. Um, I'm on a riff, but I uh, don't know where to start. Uh, I kind of want to let you start, Stephen, because I feel like I bogarted a lot of the conversation no, it was good for you guys. I enjoyed listening to Sid talking with you both. And you guys had great questions for him. And I was like, this, that was the kind of conversation where I didn't mind um, just sitting back. Cause I, I've been talking with Sid with some of these um, issues, but also talking about his work and where to find materials, possible materials mm-hmm. related to his, um, as he writes his book. I felt like the, I, I, I want to hear, I liked, I liked the entire thing, but really enjoyed Travis and Sid going back and forth, um, finding something to hold and and think about as they as they were as they were relating to one another and kind of missing each other. But at the same time, I thought that was just good conversation. I, I wasn't missing him. I, I wasn't missing him. He was missing mm-hmm. me. I, I was. I ah, was okay. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't missing him. I, I was clear on what his point was. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I and I and I have to say that um, typically when. We get into situations with just us three or with, um, and and it's been rare, we've only just started a new format, one person before, which was the conversation Mm -hmm. with Nick Mirzov. But in times when we've gotten testy with each other or uh, somewhat combative, I I tended to to get uncomfortable because, Mm -hmm. but I mean, I'm not necessarily uncomfortable with combativeness in general. Like I, I, I ran into a fair amount of that in my professional life. Uh, sure. But in, in the podcast, it tends to make me feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable. But this time I was not so uncomfortable because I felt like uh, it's going to work out one way or the other. And I, and, I, and I definitely felt more sympathetic to Travis's point of view because I felt there was a way in which Sydney wasn't owning up to the fact that there is a kind of Default, almost default position, almost default position, emphasis on almost, among certain conversations around race, ethnicity, sexuality, and representation mm-hmm. in the larger culture that presumes that white Men, especially straight white men, are representative in some in, in interlocked way, in some sort of inescapable way. They are representative mm-hmm. of whiteness, and I think that because they get those two mm-hmm. things mixed up, that what they do is they end up saying these general things about white cis men, white cis straight men, and they become white in some ways. White straight cis men become the boogeyman. And they become the sort of demiurge of, of what's wrong with our culture. And I've always found that language, not only is it not fair, but it is also, it doesn't seem to be willing, the people who use that kind of generalization don't seem to be willing to give to other people the, the very own recognition of their, of their 
sort of wide and free and deep humanity that they themselves are asking for, mm. which says to me then that your humanity or the recognition of your humanity is really important to you, but it's not necessary, but you don't feel like you need to reciprocate unless the person happens to look like you. I had a good conversation with Sid, like mm. maybe a good 30 minutes after we closed mm. and he was, he really in, enjoyed, but mm. also felt like those are the kind of conversation he wants to have, mm. you know, more of. Mm -hmm. So that's the only thing I'll say that he said, okay. um, as relates to this, I kind of want to steer it a little bit differently into the substance of what Please. he was speaking about. Please because do. what I really enjoyed, Travis, was that you, your, what did you say, your hour of learning about ballroom culture was mm -hmm. really fascinating to me and interesting because what I love about being introduced to a, a, a cultural phenomena and mm -hmm. that it has so many... Um, so many uh, spaces to it. It has a history, has various histories to it, depending on where you're at in the world and so mm. forth. And so it was um, when you, you'd ask questions about, about it, but I wanted to ask you a couple of things like that. Now that you had heard a little bit about Sid's project and what he's up to and, and the kinds of things that go on in ballroom culture, you know, just that it happens at night and that it's driving culture right now, not all culture, but it's driving a particular kind of culture in terms of mm -hmm. entertainment with Pose, RuPaul's Drag Race, um, Legendary, which um, Sid is, was a writer and a producer on. Mm -hmm. what, were, what were some of the things that you learned about it? I know it sounds corny. I was like, what did you learn? And, uh, and, and how did you... Uh... No, just what did you think about it? Interesting. I, I mean, I thought it was, you know, I... I the the list of things that cultural phenomena that I don't find interesting is you know super short so um, mm, and, mm. and may maybe altogether absent I don't know um, oh wow okay and, and, no I mean I, just about anything is is interesting uh, no I I can relate to that yeah you mean yeah. like and even so, like Jello wrestling. Like you're interested in that? <laughs> I was like, in, I was like incels, but so, oh, that's interesting to me yeah, too. Absolutely, incels. Because you know, jello wrestling. Um, you know, like sure, of course, absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. as far as you know, the spectacle of it, or what? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of an off the cuff uh, example, but yeah, of course, wouldn't you want to know, like, uh, you know, wouldn't you want to know about that process? Like, how do they decide what flavor? Like, I see, they, I wanna, I'm like, tapping, I'm <laughs> tapping the mic to make sure it's on when I say, hell no, I'm not interested. Like, like I can tell you a, like a few things I'm not interested in. Like I'm not interested in the world of, um, wrestling. Like that, the fate, like the entertain entertainment okay, as so wrestling. Super, like, so not, I, I just feel like really okay. guys needed something to do. Not <laughs> other than no, play sports. Oh my God. No, these are absolute <laughs> wrestling. No, professionals. wrestling. No, mm -hmm. no, it's not just that, but, pro, but, but pro, pro wrestling is absolutely reenacting uh, like prototypical stories of struggles between good and evil, right and wrong. And it's absolutely, mm -hmm. it's played out on a stage. It's no different than uh, it's mythology making for a certain class of people. And, mm -hmm. and I would say, and, and I would say like, and I would say that your revulsion to it, your reaction to it <laughs> is, is a class signal in general. It's a class signal. And so it doesn't, I think, it doesn't have to be Travis. It doesn't but it, have but to it, be. But no, 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 I, no, <laughs> I didn't say disinterest is a class signal. I said revulsion 
is is a class signal and and i and and i i this is i, I noticed you, the class i mean this made sid uncomfortable this it seems mm-hmm. to make you slightly uncomfortable like I'm not saying everything boils down, boils down to class. I, I personally, I, I, I don't believe that at all. Neither but it is I, definitely, yeah. it is definitely an unremarked aspect of of American culture, and it's 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 very much it's very much in play with what is in vogue and what's acceptable to talk about, what's acceptable to praise, and what's acceptable to shun. And I know that you don't necessarily you you want to talk about the ballroom stuff, and I'm happy to talk about it, but. Yeah, I think the, and my conversation with Sid was fine. I wasn't missing Sid. I understood what Sid was saying, and I think I understood what Sid was policing in in his language. And if you if and you had said this in the podcast, even anytime you have to say we don't mean all blank, you are on the wrong side of an argument. And this is something that you had said, Stephen. This is something that Sid had said. We don't mean all white people. There is literally one class, an intellectual, sophisticated elite culture that you are allowed to say that about, and it's white cis men. You could not say, if I could not make mm-hmm. some broad generalization and say, I don't mean all black men, I don't mean I, I, but all I know this conversation. I know this conversation. I stand with how I feel about people's intellectual development. I do. I do. I don't feel like I need to say I'm not talking about all white men. I don't. I don't feel like I have to say I'm not talking about all black people. I do not. I'll st- what I will do is I'll put a pin in that because I want to go back to the cultural aspect of it because we've already we've 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 talked about this on the podcast before and we've said it twice now here. And so I don't want it always to sort of come back around the class or it doesn't always t- come back around the class. I, I mean, the class is no, not no, 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 we talk about that. a lot. Right. I'm not saying that. Right. But, well, the point I was making with Seth specifically, because I wanted to hear what Seth had to say about whether or not his revulsion to this was a class aspect. Was it just like, and I said, no, it didn't have to be boiled down to class, meaning that he could come out of some other way of being about, with his revulsion. So, 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 right. So I just, I, I want to adjust that quickly. I want to say an all complete transparent honesty. I don't know how much of that is influenced by my aspirational class. Mm. Okay. Loyalty. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, I was, I came up in a working class family, very Mm -hmm. aspirational, Mm -hmm. and I worked my way to a place where it is not unfair to say that I Mm-hmm. tend to spend time in elite circles, right? Like, that's that's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. But I want to also say, I feel maybe it's a tick or two less or different kind of revulsion when people say, oh, you should go see the opera. Because honestly, okay. I find that shit as boring as, God, I don't know what. I mean, so the... E- it's awful. <laughs> like awful. Like, I, I appreciate you saying that. So the, it's it's funny you say that. So this is this is this is such a great example because I know. So I said my list is super short. Unfortunately, on my short list is opera. I have tried. Yeah. I have tried to enjoy opera. Yeah. But here's the thing. I'm not. Of... I won't make a. No, no, no. I, this I will. <laughs> this is my shortcoming. So uh-huh. I will say this is my mm-hmm. intellectual. And aesthetic limitation. Mm. I'm not saying this is the fault of opera. I'm saying this is the fault of Travis. I cannot enjoy opera. I've tried. I went like I've been to I've been to five 
Mm-hmm. And, and, that's four. And, that's four more than and, I've been to. <laughs> I've been to five. And uh-huh. one of them, one of them, I went like this was like a super uh, like me pushing me outside of my bounds. It was like this mm-hmm. probably the second time I was in Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, my German was like not very good, and I went uh-huh. by myself to uh, the opera house in Mannheim. And, <laughs> and proceeded to fall asleep uh-huh. in like the second or third act or whatever. Uh-huh. It was so one of the most embarrassing moments of my life uh-huh. because I'm surrounded by, you know, I'm already socially uncomfortable because okay. you know, I don't, you know, it's, I'm not that comfortable in spaces in which I don't feel like I have a linguistic command of the environment. Okay. And so, um, and so, but no, and so like, so opera is unfortunately, it's on my short list. I, 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 I don't know if it's an intellectual shortcoming, though. I think it's just, it you, it's not your taste. Why does exactly. it have to go to a particular... No, no, I, agreed. Agreed you know? with no. Stephen. Yeah. No, no, because, no, I, I don't say, I'm not saying I have to like it. I'm not saying I have to like it. I'm not saying I have to love it. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that I have a reflexive desire to make fun of it. <laughs> and that 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 that, that <laughs> is an intellectual shortcoming. It what? really is. Like I want to make fun of it, and I want to make fun of it because I don't get it. I'm not sure and, what the intellectual <laughs> shortcoming is. If it's just funny jokes about something that well, is not your taste. funny. I mean, whether it's funny or not, I don't know. But, but is it an intellectual shortcoming? Please parse this. I don't understand what you mean. Right, I because don't. I think what he wants to do. I mean, I'm going to talk about you like you're not here for a second. Yeah, for just a second, yeah, Travis. Yeah, I think what you want to do is you want to you want to make a case that you're treating it, you're treating opera in the same way that someone who's sort of aesthetically neutral would treat um, um, professional wrestling. Because you don't want to you don't want to make come off as like this kind of, um, uh, this kind of um, uh, thinker who's just, who just, whose world is so aesthetically prescribed that anything outside of it is just, oh, it's just beneath my, just, it's just disdainful. It's just beneath me. Like, you don't want to come off like that. So you're going to make a case that, like, it's your intellectual or whatever shortcoming for it. I'm like, I'm with Stephen on this. Like, the, like taste, you know, we know the Bordeaux, Bordeaux's, or Bordeaux's argument, which Bordeaux. is that it's all, like, it, you know, it's all, for him, it's all, um, uh, uh, formed in your habitus, in the, in the kind of class that you grow up in. That's where you get your sense of taste from. Mm. I would like to say that given that my habitus <laughs> has changed over the years, um, despite what I was formed in, that I feel very similarly about opera as I do about pro wrestling. I think they're both sort of, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I hesitate to call opera silly, but, um, and I'm definitely more comfortable calling pro wrestling silly, but I also mm-hmm. get that they have their audiences in both, and 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 their audiences are, from what I can tell, being outside of them, equally fervent about attending those performances and following the heroes, the singers, mm-hmm. the wrestlers. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I, I I just I just I just feel like it's it's okay in some instances to be disdainful of things as long as <laughs> as long as as long as it doesn't carry over to being disdainful of people. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I think that's totally fair. Stephen, you look like you're about to say something to me. Let me no, I just had to go up with the word disdain. <laughs> the feeling that someone or something is unworthy of one's consideration, respect, or contempt. And you know, there's a contempt. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. 
So the only thing I wanted to say was I'm apparently a lot classier than both of you because I do love opera. It is. <laughs> and just want to let our listeners know that I'm the classiest of the three. <laughs> a word that I'd love to use because, you know, I'm trying to just, I like, I like the finer things in life. You know, I'm just saying. But, um, but I have no problem with, um, not liking something. In fact, I think like just becoming more aware of the, you know, just the endless streaming and all the stuff that's on YouTube. I mean, on um, the streaming channels, for example, yeah. Yeah. there'll be things I like and some things I don't like. Yeah. I will ask my friends for recommendations. They will throw themselves over the cliff with joy. Oh my God. Okay. So watch this. And I watch right. it. And I go, you know, I really didn't care for this because yeah, A, B, C, and D. Right. Mm-hmm. And, my friends who know who I am and vice versa, I'm like, they'll know. They're like, oh, I don't know why I, intru- I don't know why I asked you to watch that. Right, right. <laughs> but what I'm trying to do is one on one level, just communicate with them. They like this stuff. I, uh, mm-hmm. And I do the same thing. I'm like, listen to Betty Carter, listen to this group, uh, Metronomy. You know, I'll just throw stuff at them. And some people like stuff, some people don't. Mm-hmm. As, as a 20 something, 30 something, I wanted everyone to love what I loved. Mm. Because I was like, you know, this is. Chaka Khan's voice is amazing. Oh my right. God, you got to hear it. Right. And they're like, eh. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't turn it off. It was on, you know? Right. Right. And something about, I don't know what it was. I don't know what changed my mind. I, and I just like going, it's not my taste because it feels less judgmental and it right. feels like that's just not my taste. And I can right. keep moving without going. And another thing about this bullshit opera, you know, I, <laughs> I'm just not. <laughs> I love a good rant, good joke, absolutely. But um, so, yeah, I don't so, think it's an intellectual shortcoming at all. I don't. So I don't. So this is I I I want to push this point a little bit more, and then I'd like to pick up something Seth said. I do, and so I think because mm-hmm. I'm not talking about that it has to be your taste. I'm saying this: Could Shakespeare write it? Could Tolstoy write it? Could Baldwin write it? Like, j- like you don't have to. If you cannot, if you cannot stretch, distort your imaginative capacity to encompass something that is foreign or alien to you. That is Mm -hmm. your own shortcoming. Now, as a human, I've got lots of them, right? But that doesn't make it not a shortcoming. Now, that doesn't have to mean that I, that I love it or that I listen to it in my Mm -hmm. leisure or that it's something I would relax with, you know, a cocktail with. That's not what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. Mm -hmm, I'm mm -hmm. saying that I currently am not able to build bridges from my aesthetics and enjoyment to something like opera and that mm-hmm. that is my shortcoming and it's a real one and it's okay it's fine i don't i don't put a lot of work into it anymore i tried you know when i was younger it's mm-hmm. not happening for me and um and i think we all have those limitations and then to just you're about to say something Seth, and i'll because i'll kick it back to you what what Seth had said i 100 agree with as long as it doesn't extend to disdain for the people that do mm-hmm, take mm-hmm, mm-hmm. their leisure and do take pleasure from those things. I am skeptical that that does not happen, though. I am skeptical that that, and I'm not talking about Yusuf. I'm saying just in general that it's not a shorthand for dismissing large groups of people. Well, okay. I, what I want to fess up to is actually, I think that there is a part of me. I I don't I, I again I don't I don't have anyone in my life. I'm not, I'm saying again. I was like I've said this to before. Maybe I have on the podcast, but not in this conversation. But I don't have anyone in my life who at least has outed themselves to me as a as a pro wrestling fan. 
I do think that I have some disdain <laughs> for those people. I do. I do. Like yeah. in my, in my heart of hearts, I think that if I were to read like an account and I've, and I actually was just watching some YouTube videos last night mm-hmm. about, I watch these random ass YouTube videos and this one happened to be about, um, women bodybuilders who overdid it. Okay. And a, a, a lot of those stories, of course, are women who end up in the pro wrestling, uh, ring mm-hmm. circuit. And there is part of me that I, I, I have to admit, I find, I get the good and evil. I get that it is a mm-hmm. kind of working man's opera or music. Like, I get that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I find the performance is so ham-fisted, mm-hmm. so obvious that they're embarrassing to me. <laughs> like I feel like I feel like it's watching like a really bad soap opera. Like and soap operas are already. Are you bad, drinking your tea while you're doing this? Right, with my pinky stuck out, right? <laughs> am I, tw- am I twirling my mustache? Just tasteful. Ugh. <laughs> no, you don't have the mustache. You're not evil. You're just like uh you're just <clears throat> not even a word, just a <clears throat> just uh just uh, 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 present, uh like I, but the thing is the thing is y'all know me in you know y'all know me in my real life and I don't go around treating people like that I don't even if mm-hmm. I feel it even if I, and I do and I'm admitting to you and everyone listening to this that sometimes mm-hmm. I feel that mm-hmm. I don't act mm-hmm. on it I don't say oh look at you with your uh, your, your pro wrestling like, oh, that's, that's what you're <laughs> doing with your onesie. Friday night <laughs> your calf boots. Uh, your, uh, let me tell you something. I'm going to make it to the ring and I'm going to kill you. I'm like, I think I remember, as, like I said, maybe as a preteen, I was watching it and I was like, yeah, I guess guys who don't do football, you know, the regular right. sports need something to do. Big bodies, right. sure. Right. You right. know, it just, it, that was almost my exact thought. I was like, oh, this makes sense to me. Okay. So, mm. Like, that's what it was. I've mm. been to a couple. Mm. Matches, but nothing like the W, um, whatever the WWF? initials are. But it was WWF when we were kids. Now it's like WWE or something. Right, like right, that. right, right, right. But yeah. I was just like the production values in the '90s went up. Like you mm-hmm. know, there's and just like oh my goodness, this is yeah. this is like really it's a spectacle. Yeah. So, but I, I don't want to step on what you're saying, uh, Seth, about just feeling that that <clears throat> inside. Um, yeah. Um. I don't have that, but so you but know, I'm to, trying to figure out what I do have that for. But that's it. Go ahead, Tra- Travis. I'm just so, thinking you know, so through. D- you know, the voguing thing, like so, you know, voguing in the mm. ballroom community and stuff like that. Like oh, I, good. you know, uh, it doesn't. I don't know if this is necessary to say, but it doesn't trip anything for me. Like it doesn't. Okay. Like the trans community, mm-hmm. you know, and and whatever sort of inter- entertainment's preoccupations that it, that it has, it doesn't mm-hmm. trip anything for me in either direction. Like I don't, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't, it's not something that I like want to, f- you know, like, like let's go see a drag show. Like, Ooh, isn't that so like, it doesn't, right. it just doesn't do anything for me either way. Like, Oh yeah, cool. I'll go do that. That's fine. This is interesting. This is fun. And mm-hmm. it doesn't trip anything for me in a negative way. So f- for, you know, I get that as, as sort of a moment in time in, Anglo U.S. culture, this is mm-hmm. this seems to be a big deal. It's kind of having a moment on both sides of it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's, no, definitely. There's HBO shows and people are kind of engaged in it and, and sort of in in lifting it up and celebrating it. 
and it's producing a great deal of anxiety amongst you know a certain segment of the population. Drag queen story hour. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I I feel I feel outside of all of that. Like it doesn't. Mm. So you know, sit as a guest or whatever, and, and so like, oh yeah, this is cool. I can watch this, and and this is kind of why I had asked the question about t- kind of its physicality because again. Mm. So, and this is to bring it back to where a point of disagreement was. Like, I feel like in my, my reflex, my inclination is to, I want to know, like, where are the crossovers? Where are the similarities? Where, how are these things, how are these cultural practices all touching one another? Mm. Like, how are we as communities Mm -hmm. reproducing the same things yet, you know, standing on a soapbox with a pitchfork yelling that they're different and unique and super special. Mm. And so, Mm -hmm. and this was like the, 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 the least generous part of the conversation, which was, you know, being taken to task for using the word unique, for example, Mm. like Mm -hmm. we all, all of, all of our, our, our communities, both large and small and Mm. us as individuals want to be seen and we want to be seen as distinct from what surrounds us. This is just a basic human need. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I have, I'm all for that. I'm saying, let's celebrate it. Let's expand the table. Let's let everyone have a seat, you know, pull up more chairs, make a bigger table. But what I get sometimes in these converse, in conversations and in social media and in the media is that there is a resentment of other people sitting at that table right. that, mm-hmm. that they want the mic. They, they want, they want the highest pedestal and Mm -hmm. I am using they in a very vague sense because I'm not directing it at anyone. I'm not talking about it in particular. I'm saying in general, I see Mm -hmm. this as a deep problem. And I think, and I I don't mean to, I, I know you don't want to talk about that, Stephen, and we don't have to talk about it, but it is, it is vital for me. And that's why I keep coming back to it. It is why I think language is so important. And I don't think that it is, I don't think that it's pandering to point out that we shouldn't be generalizing negatively or probably positively about large groups of people. Like I do, I feel it's irresponsible to talk about cultures is different to say something about white culture, go for it to say something about whiteness, go for it to say something about mm-hmm. black culture, go for it because these are distinct entities. They can be talked about, they can be parsed, they can be critiqued, but to say something about black people, to say something about white people, to say something about straight people, gay people. No, I'm not okay with it ever. And I don't think it's pandering. I think it's wrong. Yeah, well said. Um, I do want to get to this, to two questions actually. Um, and they're very different. Um, and one, I'm just, I'm just going to say the second one now because I don't want to forget it. Because it was really about a question to, d- directed at Travis. Because you had said something towards the end of that conversation with Sid about race being a sort of metaphysical property. You said something about, and then mm. something like gender isn't. And, and just, hold, just put a pin in there. Hold that. It is for Christians, though. Right, right, for right. Sure right, yeah, but, sure is, right yeah. but hold that. Hold that thought. Because the other question I wanted to get to was less of a question, sort of more of a sort of meandering thought, which is when I first, and I really wanted to get into this with Sid, but we never got the chance to. When I first saw Paris is Burning, mm-hmm. years, I, may, I think I may have seen it like in the early 90s. I love that film. I'm fascinated with the film. By the way, I still love it. Um, and when, when Sid said, you know, we were trading, he said something like we were trading lines from the show back, bars, back and forth. Yeah. With, right. right. Yeah. Bars. Didn't you say bars? Mm-hmm. Right, bars. Right. 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 Yeah. With his friend. And as, there's this scene, which I love, um, where, um, one of, I think 
one of the announcers to one of the drag shows was talking about basically giving people advice about what to wear. And he said, um, natural fibers. They're natural. <laughs> you can try polyester, but you know how the children are. <laughs> I, love, I love that because it's Hilarious. so, it's so, it's so of that time and place. And it's so, it's funny and it's like enlightened at the same time. It's like, and it's a warning. It's like, you know how the uh-huh. children are. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so, so keep it natural. Um, yeah, anyway, I wish I'd been able to, to do, to talk about that film more with Sid because for me, mm-hmm. that was like my entrance to, um, being aware of the, um, mm-hmm. the drag, um, ball culture. Me scene. too. Yeah. And, um, I was just fascinated. The people like Willie Ninja, like the way, the way he moved, it was like that the physicality. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was, it was really impressive. It was and stunning. it still is. Yeah. I think so when it comes to Paris is Burning, I had the both, I was in Cleveland and I went with a friend mm. to a, a premiere of it. Mm-hmm. And I felt sad because I was oh, thinking wow. about the way. So you saw it in the theater when it came? I saw it in wow. the theater, yeah. Wow. Okay. And wow, 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 wow. I walked out sad and a little uh, a little tense because mm. I was thinking of the the very thing that was keeping these people down were the things they were imitating these class yes. notions, these yes. ideas. And so I couldn't yes. get around, I couldn't get around to the signify. I couldn't yes. get around to these other ways of yes. knowing mm-hmm. and thinking about what they were doing. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is people are homeless mm-hmm. people being kicked out of their houses because they're gay. And mm-hmm. then they're finding these families, which is great. But I, I didn't focus on any of that. That was mm-hmm. like maybe 30 years of rethinking and mm-hmm. kind of seeing yeah. again. But my first impressions were, this is a, this is sad, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it wasn't even, it wasn't cast that way. It was just, you know, I think for all the criticism that Jenny Livingston gets, it was the first introduction for many of us. Yes. Learning about the ballroom scene outside of major cities, yes. outside of New York City specifically. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because it's the only thing I'd known until we had, until I watched yeah. this recent. Yeah. You know, and, and then, so that's, it's kind of the jumping off point for a lot of people in terms of just thinking about the politics, the culture of, of the ballroom scene, mm-hmm. you know, and who and who's engaged in it and so forth. And now I've have since in the last 30 years have had friends who compete. I've been to a couple, but I like be I like sleep. I'm not gonna go to your fucking <laughs> how late do they go? But they so what they do is they tell you it'll start mm-hmm. at a certain time. Mm. It doesn't mean it's gonna start a certain time. It's not even everyone, because clearly I haven't gone to all of them. Mm, yeah. Um it could never, but It'll, it's almost like, so I remember there was this thing that I would notice um, with certain clubs, mm-hmm. and then I'll go to ballroom. So the clubs would say, there's going to be a talent show. Mm-hmm. Starts at 11. Now, I'm at this, I'm, la- I'm, I'm up late. I don't like that. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a morning person. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can only come out once and sing your song, show your outfit, dance. That's it. Don't come out two or three times. I'm getting <laughs> angry because now I want to dance, but you're taking up all this time. So I say that because... <laughs> The ballroom scene, there's there's a lot of um, personalities and folks involved. And so it may say that it'll start at 12. Right. It might start at 2 or 3. Right. By that time, I don't care. Right. I'm done. I'm <laughs> what <out>. you're doing? <laughs> like, right. I want to be in my bed. Right. I, you know, so I'm not that person. Right. And so I've noticed that certain cultures, are, I mean, certain um, people in certain houses are starting to do them a little bit earlier 
or have competitions like from eight, you know, family hour, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, around mm-hmm. that time. But mm-hmm. it's, I marvel at, and this is why I go back to you, Travis, is like you, I basically find almost everything interesting. I may not be engaged in it as a fan or someone who appreciates it, but mm-hmm. I like thinking about, um, how the ballroom scene came together, how it's changed over the years, how it continues to sort of reflect society around it. Mm. There's a, I mean, there's a whole culture of music that mm. isn't even outside of like on radio or mm-hmm. even in various communities. Mm-hmm. It's just in the ballroom scene. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating, mm-hmm. you know? And, Absolutely. And so, so stuff like that, but also as a, as an archivist, I'm always curious about how to capture something in real time. And so, for example, mm. I was asked by the Apollo last year to look at some films. There were like in fifties and sixties, and it was this photographer by the name of Gordon Anderson, who was considered uh, the um, unofficial photographer of the of the Apollo. Mm-hmm. And you've seen both of you have seen photographs before, where they're like, you know, they're eight by tens or what have you, but they would have they'd be in a circle. So there's a circle in the middle with the artist or artist, and then around there'd be like several different scenes. Oh You've yeah, seen yeah. That before, yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I can show you. So anyhow, I was invited to come and to look at the material and then kind of think about it in relationship to Black queer Harlem historically. And mm-hmm. so I had some things to say about it, what have you. But what I noticed was that there. I mean, that was a part of. And Sid, I'm going to connect Sid to the folks at the Apollo so that he can see that stuff. How um, complicated it is. Mm. Like it wasn't. You can't. You can't talk about homophobia as as to um to um riff on what Travis said as just this one thing. It's very complicated. Mm, you know, whose mm. son is this? Whose daughter is this? How much mm. in different kinds of communities? It depends on. It, it's not just class, but it has a lot to do with um, church, mm. people's beliefs about queerness for sure. And it's changed, and it's it's mm-hmm. not one thick thing. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that it's, you know, that you can't pull apart and like, you know, what do you call it? Parse it. It's, it's really com- So anyway, these, these photographs of these men in drag and these videos, they're fascinating. Mm. And they're not even all of them. So, you know, I just saw some of them. And, I, and so it, it's coming up pretty soon where they, they filmed it. And we talk a little bit about Gordon Anderson as a photographer, as a person who took home video, somebody who knew Nina Simone, I think. She was from Baltimore, I think. Wow. Baltimore, Philadelphia. Okay. And they both, she told him to come to New York City. And that's how he got there and became this, his, his, um, Schomburg has an amazing um, collection of his work. The Apollo has and so forth. But he, he captured that time. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not even sure why, you know, maybe it was just an oddity, but it was, it was interesting. So anywho, but I, that's why I like, I'm, I'm happy that. Sid is doing the work that he's doing so that he can get to those resources and mm. think through those resources. Because oftentimes I'd say when I was building the in life archive at the Schomburg with the community, the two is two areas that were really lacking was bisexuality and trans life. Mm. And I knew why it was because one people weren't identifying as bisexual right. as readily as lesbian or gay. Right. Mm-hmm. And and then also there was a backlash within the community around, no, you're just bisexual because you haven't gone to gay yet or you haven't gone to lesbian yet. I mean, right. both sides police that very strongly, right? Yeah. I mean, the hetero they're, side and the, and the homosexual can. side. Yeah, Absolutely. They can. Because there seems it, to, it, 
it's a threat say, to both of them. I mean, it's it's a threat. It's seen you know, as a threat. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, right, right. right. Yeah. It's perceived as a threat to both uh, uh-huh. to, uh, to both communities that 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 use their sexuality as a strong identifier. Um, Very much so. The fact that it's, you can sort of slide that there's any sort of movement in those ant between those antipodes is uh, is unsettling still- for a lot of people. It's unsettling, and I've been thinking about the reasons why. And so I remember being in a car once, and I was a passenger, and there was a friend of mine who was in the back seat who had just come out to me like maybe a month before that as bisexual. Mm-hmm. And my friend who's driving, this guy named Tom, Tom is riding along, and he's going, I just don't know about bisexuals. Let me tell you, I just don't understand <laughs> them. I, w- I don't trust them. I would never date anybody. And I'm like looking at a river mirror going, <laughs> you know, you are got a bisexual back there. Um, but also... But but the 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 passion behind the um it was very interesting. But anywho, I want to talk about the cult- there weren't any a lot of cultural products. There weren't like books and films and the stuff that I could collect on you know mass stuff. There may have been uh you know Baldwin never described himself as a bisexual and neither did Lorraine Hansberry, but they both had relationships with men and women. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of retro um identifying or labeling that I don't go for. If you don't call yourself something, I don't call you that. Yeah. You know, but that's, that was one of the things. And the, as far as trans life, there were only a few things, but there was more work around trans life in terms of violence. So there were a lot of articles, mm-hmm. you know, and abuse and killings and so forth like that. So um, with Sid, Sid and a, a number of other um, trans um, scholars are doing different things to pull things out and to think about them, but they're also producing, and that stuff would have been the stuff I would have collected, you know, mm-hmm. to add to the collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of more cultural producers as well. I'm going to ask the question, Stephen, that, that just occurred to me as you were talking about the sort of paucity of materials around mm-hmm. yeah. more, let's say, marginalized, no, me, me, even communities that, or identities that appear even less regularly in the literature. Mm-hmm. Transvestites. I don't even know if that's the correct term to use anymore, but I'm thinking of someone like Eddie Izzard, who... Mm. <coughs> Eddie, he's interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. He identifies as straight, yes. but he dresses mm-hmm. in women's clothing. Mm-hmm. I think trans transvestite is an outdated term. Thank you. Is a cross-dresser? Is, is cross-dressing is, okay. what, is what it was. I think okay. so, cross-dresser, yeah. Okay, okay. Eddie Izzard's interesting. I need to spend more time with him. His comedy is amazing. This man's got a brain. Yeah, he's funny. Yeah, yeah he's, he's super shy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know. But I wonder about that identity, because that doesn't show up hardly anywhere that I... That it's not particularly visible to me, is what, is what I should say. But. I, th- I, I think that we're not that particularly... Okay, let's speak it generally. Let's speak generally, Travis. Um, let's see. <laughs> well, as I was about cultures, I think it's, it's, it's fine. We're talking well, I think about the, the culture, and I do say this, I do think the culture um, is just learning how to think about these things. Mm. And so the language will follow, right? Mm. And so the language largely has been a dismissive, sort of repressive one, an right. oppressive one that really a lot of people, sometimes people adapt adapt to these these labels some don't yeah but like eddie Izzard to me every time i see him on a tonight show or i happen to pull a clip of his mm-hmm. i'm just amazed i'm like and i remember like i would go back and see his stuff like maybe in the 80s and kind of watch his he's there are more eddie Izzards out there that don't have the platform mm, that don't sure. identify mm. the way that they would appear to be mm, you know yeah. gender wise mm, and yeah, so to me sure. that kind of I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. 
for the non-gender conforming, I'm all for it. I'm mm-hmm. for the people who are questioning. I'm all for the people who are thinking through some things in what appears to be a uh, oxygen-deprived um, environment. <laughs> They're trying to breathe and think through some things that are mm-hmm. really difficult because of the culture, right? Okay. I'm interested in, in those folks and okay. want to give them air, you know, okay. um, because, um, what was it? Um, I was listening to, <clears throat> gosh, who was it? Something about, it was um, Arthur Jaffa, which mm-hmm. I thought was, it was Arthur Jaffa. Some people say Jaffa. No, it's just and, Jaffa. Dude, so Helga has this um, website. I forget, I mean, podcast. This woman named Helga, I forget mm-hmm. her last name. Mm-hmm. She's a Broadway star, really amazing. She kept going Arthur Jaffa the entire time. He did not correct her. I've heard Jaffa, but. Yeah, I've heard Jaffa too. Okay, right? Okay. <laughs> Anywho, mm-hmm. he said that he was thinking about, you know, people love to say, so if you, what do you do every day that's, you know, that grounds you, da da da, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll die out. Um, <laughs> give, me, give it 10 years. Um, but he was like saying that he feels like the thing that artists need to do and consider rather is to build, to, to be, to, to, to expose themselves to a lot of different things. Maybe the thing that you're uncomfortable with is the thing you need to maybe wrestle with, mm. but your intentions are usually to turn away and go, no, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. not me or what have you, mm-hmm. or I don't like that. And it's like, well, maybe there's something there for you. Mm-hmm. And I feel that way about um, people who don't identify as queer in the ways that we commonly understand it. Mm-hmm. I feel like that they're pointing towards a way that hasn't happened in our the way we understand it, mm-hmm. because we're we're wedded to these other kinds of categories. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, so I'd like to pick that up actually, be, and to take it back mm-hmm. to something Seth had remarked on earlier about the metaphysical category. So mm-hmm. I, I think um, you know I didn't understand what that meant, Travis. Is what I was getting. Uh, oh, at. oh, oh, sure. Well, I, maybe I can try and ex- if if it's relevant to to this point, mm-hmm. maybe I can try and and put a little bit. Uh, more clarity on it since I'm, I'm, it's easy for me to imagine it wasn't very clear. Um, mm-hmm. So playing with gender, right, which is um, something that uh, is very intimate to you, right? It, it is, it is an intimate part of your body, mm-hmm. and and the fact that humans can make a concrete physical thing plastic, right, and 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 they can transmute it and transform it mm-hmm. is the most remarkable and dangerous thing about being human it's that you, mm. you can actually take something that doesn't exist in the universe and manifest it or transmute it into something else mm-hmm. and this is incredibly threatening to 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 people that live inside of uh, that live inside of social networks and cultures like there is mm-hmm. nothing more um there is nothing more vulnerable and sensitive than to poke and play and show the contingency of the category that defines you. There's nothing that puts people on edge more. Hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and there is a, and, and for me, I say, I mean, my feeling about that is and just what to, to, to second what you said, see that give it more air, give it more oxygen. Oh no, I think see yeah. what, see what other weirdness and strangeness humans can produce um, and we'll be better off for it. And I think, that American culture would be better off if it could do the same thing with race. If, if, I completely if it was, agree. Yeah. If, if it was, if we were able 
to loosen these categories for ourselves, if we were able to not make them metaphysical categories, which is what I feel like we have done at this point by doing things like capitalizing black and now sometimes mm-hmm. capitalizing white, um, like by, by making these, by, by strengthening the essences around these things and not making them volitional and not making them mm-hmm. a kind of liberation and liberty to be able to, to play with and transmute and transform. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've put ourselves in straitjackets and we've, we've raised the temperature. We've created more friction and we have no language to deal with someone like a Rachel Dalzell. Like just no way, like there's no way oh, for we, us to we make have, sense. We, well, we have language to deal with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Of right. course, of course. But, but in a way that would be repugnant, to us in this time and place to dismiss someone like Sid and to dismiss someone that would, that would, would take their, their own agency into account in determining their gender. Mm. Right. I mean, and, uh, and I'm all for expanding people's agency. Mm. Mm, I, uh, I want to, okay. So now I understand what you're saying. So you're saying Mm. that for the most, for the, for the most part in our culture slash society, Race is a metaphysical category. It sort of resists um, yes. being shifted or moved despite um, whatever legal, social, moral things we throw at it. Like, it's yes. like, it's like, oh my God, if you have one drop of, you know, quote unquote, if you have one drop of black blood in you, you're yep. black. That's it. That's it. And, yep. um, and I find this, um, so Stephen, I'm going to refer to a, 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 make a personal reference to, um, being at your house for a party and there was a mm. conversation going on. And do you mind if I mention this person by name who was one of your guests there? Um, I can't speak for them. Okay. Okay. But, uh, no, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I know her through, I know her through a couple of ways. I mean, I, I met her personally through Steven mm-hmm. at, because Lady Sasha Jones is her name was at his party when I was there and mm-hmm. I was dating Maya at the time and I brought Maya to the party and Maya's white for everyone who's listening. Um, mm-hmm. Stephen and Travis already know this. Um, um, and I could tell that Lady Sasha was not happy with that. Um, she, mm-hmm. she just gave me some energy or a look or something. Uh, and then there was, I don't know if it's the same occasion. I may be conflating these in my head or maybe another one, but I, okay. I, I should also mention, I noticed, I know of her also through the art circle because she wrote something for arts.black, which is a now defunct, um, online arts magazine journal that was run by Jessica. I'm going to blank on her name, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. anyway, I read her piece and, so I know her sort of vaguely through the art scene as well. Anyway, we were having an, a discussion around um, Alice Walker. And we were talking about Alice Walker's work habits and her reputation and la, la, la. And I told mm-hmm. this anecdote about her. And, um, and then someone brought up her daughter, which I think Alice Walker had with a Jewish man. So yeah, the daughter's daughter. mm-hmm. right. The daughter's biracial, and I don't know what the daughter re- wrote, but she wrote something, and a couple of people in the room had read it, and they were just they went in on her, but the way that they went in on her was, 
something about like her weak ass writing, something, something, something. And of course, something like, of course, because she's basically only half black. Like not like those weren't the exact words, but it was, it, the critique was coming from the place of, um, you know, that kind of half whatever or semi whatever. Like she wasn't like, as if to say that she didn't have the kind of insight or power or presence of mind that a real, a real black person would have. Mm. Um, mm. I remember thinking, I remember being shocked. Like, why are y'all saving so much vitriol for someone just because like they don't quite measure up to your, like your idea of what a black writer mm. should be. And I feel like that, is influenced partly at least by this fear of what it would be of what those the dissolution of that category of blackness would be for them. Mm. that's how i'm reading that and that okay. and my, you know let me say that that may not be the fairest reading but mm-hmm. that's how it felt in the moment i mean certainly whether it's true of those people can, who could speak to that but it's it's certainly true of cultural um there's certainly a lot of cultural energy from from various groups to police racial borders and mm-hmm. to and to and to declare and defend a kind of authenticity <clears throat> around you know around mm-hmm. these categories um which i think i i, I mean personally I, I find it you know given given my scholarly interests um i, I it's a very it's dejecting for me because mm-hmm. you've essentially lost because you're still playing with the category that the Brits came up with in you know the 16th century. Like mm-hmm. they invented whiteness mm-hmm. to retroactively justify their military power, mm-hmm. right, and, and their economic power, mm-hmm. and to and to permanently exclude people from you know, their share of society. Mm. And so when you're mm-hmm. playing, you know, when, when you're playing, when you're all in on these categories, I mean, doesn't the colors fucking irrelevant, white, black, brown, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't like you can flip the hierarchy, right? You're still dealing with, with this kind of race. Game, yeah. yeah. With race is, is, is again, this mm-hmm. kind of metaphysical category. Um, mm-hmm. and we're sick with it. I mean, we're totally sick with it. it, it I mm-hmm. mean, it, it's, uh, it doesn't seem, to be getting any better, at least not in its cultural productions. But you're saying that among Christians, that gender is also a metaphysical category. Like it can Yeah, I mean that's be- too broad. I mean, I don't mean all Christians, but certainly, you know, the the story of Adam and Eve and like uh, the Oath Keepers movement and uh, oh no, what's uh, oh, what's the name of that? There's another really really popular movement in in evangelical Christianity about you know sort of taking the mantle of the man of the household and, and this kind of thing. And, and I'm not saying it's all mm. negative. The positive, positive things have come out of this. You know, people take responsibility for illegitimate kids and things like that, or previously, you know, kids that haven't been recognized. So their fathers are showing up. So it's not all bad, mm-hmm. but it's clearly drawing on this kind of Adam and Eve metaphysics, like God, you know, right. you know, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's right. right. Adam, uh-huh. God, God ordained, right. you know, these, these sort of, and of course that's not all Christian communities at all there are lots of progressive ones but um but as far as it's this as a metaphysical category yeah for Mm -hmm. for a lot of a lot of christian history and and certainly in islam it's the same um you know gender is a bedrock 
Um, mm-hmm. And the the appropriate union between men and women. Marriage tends to be the primary mode of policing. The uh-huh. religious uh, the religious institution. You know the ways that, mm-hmm. that and women and men are supposed to behave towards one another. You, you know what mm-hmm. we don't talk about a lot. Uh, uh, you, what you just said, Travis, made me think of this. We don't talk about the partners of people who are transitioning or have transitioned. Like yeah. I, I'm really interested mm. in the people who are romantic mm. partners with people who have gone through the process or are going through the process. Like mm. how that union comes about. Like what. Mm. The sort of what the sort of modes of attraction are, like how they express themselves. Like, is it you know, is it primarily emotional? Is it primarily intellectual? Is it like a shared experience? Like, and how I'm 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 fascinated by that. Hmm. Do you, Stephen? Do you know anyone that's? Uh, we actually we have a friend who is uh, has been with has a long time partner who is. Uh, I don't know if there was a surgical component to his transition but he's transitioning to being a woman Uh, a woman transitioning to so it's a him so he's transitioning trans man okay okay and Mm -hmm. they've been together um i'm not gonna use her name she's crazy i I mean she's not crazy because of him i mean she's like just she's she's like (laughs) Uh, she's crazy. <laughs> she's she's like real. She's really she's really crazy. Uh, I mean, she's like. Uh, she's, you mean like deranged? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean like I probably sociopathic. Like in oh. the like when when um, she had a partner who had died, and um, she was really upset. Not like not pretend jokey upset. Was really upset that she didn't have anyone to go. It was around the time that Molly and I got married to go to our mm-hmm. wedding with. So, like, she was upset that that this person had died, and now she wasn't going to have something to go to our wedding with. Um, like, so, like, and that was her primary concern, not the death. Of, so, um, oh, but anyway, theory. yeah, for, for her, she, she so she's super impolitic about it. Like, she will sometimes refer. I don't, and I don't. I'm not going to use the name, but there is a way to feminize the name. Um, that is what she was born with and then now has transitioned to being a man and it's and there's a masculine version of the name should we'll just use these names interchangeably and so oh whatever right so and i mean clearly her relationship is with this person right she right. doesn't really give a shit about the what uh, gender the person is so anyway it's not a lot of information in that but <laughs> so there is one example that i know of. wow <laughs> Stephen, do you know anyone in your circle who has been intimately involved with the transitioning <laughs> through the transition? I do. However, I'm getting an award very soon, and I need to go get ready to get this award. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, no, 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 no. That's right. I forgot about this. Tell I was like, well, didn't we start at three o'clock? What time is it? It's just I'm sorry, <laughs> So we have to go. Stephen's getting an. Stephen, tell us about your award. Yeah, please. My award. So it's the office of the comptroller, Brad Brad Lander who is hosting a um, Black History Month, last day of the month, um, February 28th. <laughs> when is the last day we can do this yeah, event? Right, right. We can be shoehorning him in. I'm not saying that, um, Brad, if you happen to be listening to this, which you probably never will. 
<laughs> but I was, um, along with, I think, seven other people, they acknowledge uh, New Yorkers who have made some sort of difference. Black All excellence right, or excellence, blah, blah, blah. So it's hilarious. Awesome. So this is, I'm very happy about it. I mean, yeah. I'm happy about it because it's just fun to kind of think about going up there and going, um, you know, thank you for that. You acknowledge the work that I do. So, um, that's awesome. So yes, this is a great you? conversation. I think, well, the good thing about it is, okay, if I'm being shallow, it's <laughs> right around the corner from my house. <laughs> and so I don't have to go downtown or anything. I just have to show up and walk mm-hmm. home, which is great. I don't know if they're feeding us. They okay. should be, but I'm ready because I have food at home. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm ready if they don't. Okay. Um, but I get to see some people that I know from the community and so forth. So this is really nice. That's wonderful. So, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank, Thank you very much. Yeah. For sure. Nice. On the way to Oscars and other things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> things I'll never get. Um, but yeah, uh, so so apologies for that. But I need to yeah, get, go ahead and get ready. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. yeah, of course. Um, mm-hmm. We obviously great conversation. Uh, Steve, Lovely conversation. Said, again, you know, thank him for for joining us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we so. really appreciated having him on. And I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about Beyonce because I wanted to talk about how Beyonce is also one of those blind spots for me. I'm like, I don't get it. I just don't get it. <laughs>